Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Thank you so much for your support on Patreon, Adam Sennett. Adam was last seen entering the breach made in the first line of defences of the city of Magdeburg in 1631, and he hasn't been found since. This is a complete and utter lie, but if you would like me to lie about what you did in the past and give you a bit of a shout-out, you should know that you should head over to Patreon. But enough about that. I hope you can now enjoy the latest episode of Bismarck Rise. Hello there, history friends, patrons, PhD pals all. Welcome to the Bismarck series, episode 6. So in the last episode, we saw Bismarck come to power at long last. It was a path that wasn't necessarily straight. It wasn't exactly the way Bismarck had imagined it always going. The king didn't pat him on the back and say, you were right all along about Austria. Nothing so stupendous or dramatic as that. Although the scene itself, as we saw, was still pretty dramatic, as dramatic scenes go. Bismarck succeeded a succession of minister-presidents, who haven't been all that successful in turning the situation around for Prussia. Although, in their defence, they didn't know they were going to be compared to someone like Bismarck, who went on to be the most active and successful minister-president in Prussian history, so that by the time that he went in 1890, there wasn't even much point really in trying anymore. That's a whole other debate in itself. And look at us getting wrapped in tanglements and tangents already when we haven't even started the proper episode. But where are my manners? My name is Zach Twomley and this is When Diplomacy Fails. And for the last few episodes, we've been digging deep into the Bismarck story. This is episode six, as you can see. So if you haven't listened to any of the previous episodes, la di da di da make sure you listen to those because otherwise you won't know what's going on. Simple as. So head on over to those previous episodes now. The feedback has been great, but the greatest part about all of this was that yours truly got to delve into a subject that still is so incredibly fascinating. And honestly, one of the saddest parts of all of this was when I finished researching and had to put all my books back on the shelf, still in full view and still very tempting, but not PhD stuff and book stuff, which is what I have to start really getting into now. We saw Bismarck sweat once again in the previous episode. We saw how he managed to come to power, mostly because he was in the right place at the right time, also because the king really felt that he needed him, and also because Rune, Albrecht von Rune, Bismarck's good friend and contact, Rune being the Minister of War in Prussia, 
Rune really did look out for him and made sure that Bismarck's name was always at the forefront, even when he wasn't in the room for the conversation. Rune has been really underrated in the Bismarck story, probably as a result of Bismarck himself. In fairness, Bismarck does seem to dominate whatever story he's in. He'd probably like you to think that he got to this point by his own efforts, by his own steam, when in actual fact he was very much reliant on the steam of others, such as Albrecht von Rune. But Rune could only get him so far, and Rune couldn't be there either when Bismarck was taking his first steps onto the world stage. He couldn't be there when Bismarck was trying to put his own stamp on the office of minister-president. What even was a Prussian minister-president? Some people didn't even really know. The position had only existed since 1848, after all. So what did a minister-president do? According to recent tradition, it seemed fairly certain that whoever held the position of minister-president would also hold the position of foreign minister. The most successful minister-presidents had at least done that. And Bismarck, not because he wanted to emulate or copy people who had gone before him, but literally because he couldn't imagine putting foreign policy under the control of anyone else, decided that he would also have the foreign ministry position as well. At one point, Bismarck had imagined that the foreign ministry would be enough for him, and he hadn't actually aimed all that much higher than that post. After 10 years as foreign minister of Prussia, perhaps I'll retire and grow fruit trees, just like my uncle did, Bismarck amazingly said. But as we know, that is not what happened, because a few years before he came to power, Bismarck discovered that he could in fact aim that high, and that foreign minister wasn't out of bounds just as minister-president wasn't either. You see, King Wilhelm of Prussia had a problem. Really, he had several problems, but the most pressing problem was the conflict underway between crown and parliament. The king, the crown, his ministers, etc., wanted to pass a military reform bill, and the parliament, the Landtag, just would not accept it. They didn't like several terms of this reform bill, and they also didn't like its cost. They also feared, and these fears weren't unfounded, you could look to neighbouring states to see examples of this happening, they feared that as soon as they voted the increases for this army, that same army would march down to the Landtag, close the door, and all of these deputies would be essentially, well, unemployed. But they would be able to watch as a new era of absolutism was ushered in, courtesy of the army that they had just helped to create. Such a nightmarish scenario would not do, so rather than risk it, they decided to just not give the king the chance, and they refused to grant the necessary funds or the necessary approval for any real aspect of this bill. This is an immensely fast-forwarded version of what happened, of course, just check the previous episode to find out what really went down, but as we have stated before, it's not exactly all that exciting to talk about military reform and the nitty-gritty details of it, and that's why it's great that we don't really need to do that. All you need to do to understand this story and to hold in your head the explanation for how Bismarck came to power is to remember that this military bill had a key role in that. And it had a key role in Bismarck's path because the king believed, and Rune had led the king to believe, that no one other than Bismarck would be able to balance this conflict between Crown and Parliament and come out the other side with this reform bill in his hands. Of course, the king, and also probably Rune, were unaware of the monster they weren't necessarily creating, because Bismarck had 
been around before, but basically opening the larder door and inviting the monster to basically raid all the stuff that you owned. That is what it seemed like they were doing. But Rune and the king had come to believe that this was the right option. It certainly seemed like there were few other options for the Persian king to choose from. There didn't seem to be any other candidates. The few that they had chosen had quickly retired from view because really, nobody wanted this poison chalice. Just like Bismarck before had taken that poison chalice position of ambassador to Frankfurt in 1851. Now he was taking another poison chalice, but this one was poisoned for a different reason. It wasn't poisoned because the deputy who would sit in this position would have to deal with any humiliation from a foreign power. Oh no, this position was far worse. It was far more challenging because you wouldn't be facing Austrian or French interests. You wouldn't be dealing with underhanded methods to kind of take you off your position. Instead, you'd be dealing with the mob, with the liberals, with those darned Republicans who kept on trying to restrict the powers of the king and throw the country's soul in the dustbin. These were the people that Junkers like Bismarck were taught to fear from an early age, and it really seemed like those liberals, those radicals, were about to transform Prussia and break the king in order to do it. Because that's the way the deadlock seemed to be heading. Neither side would back down. The king couldn't relent, because that would have been a humiliation, so he said he would abdicate. But even if he had abdicated, and he couldn't because his son Frederick wouldn't let him, but even if he had abdicated, it would have just continued on as a conflict between Frederick and the Parliament instead. Some suspected that the king really wanted Bismarck to bring that darned land tag down a few pegs. And Bismarck would have told his king not to worry. I'm not just going to take it down a few pegs. I'm going to make this land tag essentially irrelevant for the next 20-something years. Because so long as Bismarck was in power, and so long as he had the support of the king, Bismarck realised very early on that he needed little else. He certainly didn't need the majority approval of the land tag to get what he wanted because he already could get what he wanted with a simple few attacks on his king's mental health and stability. That's the kind of pattern we start to see, at least, emerging in the next few episodes. For the king and for Rune to bring in Bismarck, they probably thought they were putting someone in power who could deal with their problems. Little did they know that they weren't using Bismarck. Bismarck was using them. Not only did he not particularly care about the military reform, as we will continue to see over the next few episodes, Bismarck was willing to drag out the military reform debacle. He was willing to stretch the crisis along, because he knew that so long as he did this, the king would need him. Because, of course, the king didn't know he was dragging this out. Bismarck turned down opportunities to compromise with the deputies, because he didn't want the military bill to be passed. If it was passed, the king would take one look at the bill that was handed into his hands, he would take one look at Bismarck and say, well, I don't need you anymore, I'll get someone else who's a lot more pliable and a lot less extreme. Bismarck envisioned this happening, and to avoid this eventuality, he took matters literally into his own hands, pretty much refusing to solve this issue and drawing the king's attention away from it by creating trouble in other areas, as we will see. The Bismarck story it starts to lay its foundations in this point. That's why I think it's a shame that you don't really see this period covered all that much. Most histories of Europe, at least the ones that deal with the build-up to World War I, most of them start in 1871. 
And don't get me wrong, 1871 to 1890 is probably my favourite verse of this song, but I really feel as though this initial verse here, or the few verses before 1864, which show how Bismarck became the legend that he, well, he's known as now. That legend didn't appear like a comet on the scene out of nowhere in 1871. Bismarck had to get there somehow, and he got there by, well, holding the king's mental health to ransom and manipulating and bullying and, well, those were the less savoury parts of how he got there. But of course he also used his immense intelligence, his searing ambition, and his boatloads of energy. Those three characteristics, of course, we've come across already, but the three of them being there in spades in Bismarck's character helped empower him to do all that he did. They also lent him not a small amount of self-confidence. And self-confidence is important when you're standing up to your king, the man who's supposed to be your master and who's supposed to be divinely ordained to rule over you and your countrymen. Everything was about to change in Prussia. The man who held the strings, the wire pullers, as Bismarck used to call them, well, he was about to become one of those. But Bismarck's puppet was going to be the king of Prussia. And whether Bismarck liked to admit it or not, he would hold on now and keep on holding on until Wilhelm's grandson ejected the Iron Chancellor from power. And even then, Bismarck did not go willingly. Power was something that he craved. It was something that made him ill, but it was something that he really felt, despite himself, he couldn't do without. So that performance brings us to now, in late 1862, a few weeks after Bismarck had been appointed, and when he was facing into what amounted to his first real test. Bismarck had not really prepared all that much for a whole load of strife in his initial few weeks. What he had wanted to do, what he had intended to do but not really told anyone, was to try and get his way in foreign policy and to push aside the king's military reform bill by pretty much just putting Parliament on the long finger and doing his best to ignore them. If he could ignore them, and if he could keep them away for long enough, perhaps Bismarck thought he could get some kind of foreign policy success that would take everyone's mind off just how unpopular, well, first of all, he was, but also how unpopular the military reform bill was, and many other aspects of Wilhelm's governmental style. And that's why the first year of Bismarck's regime, you could call it, because it very much was a regime. He didn't behave like previous minister-presidents, behaved more like a czar of the Prussian government than the actual servant of the King of Prussia. But in any case, Bismarck's first year as minister-president, as czar of the Prussian government, did not at all go the way that he expected, because he was hit with a succession of different surprise crises that he could never have predicted. But, as we will see, these proved to be acid tests for Bismarck's character and for his relationship with the king, both of which would change. Bismarck would become a lot more hardened following several years in power and he would also look a lot older according to contemporary accounts. But he would also adjust his relationship with the king so that the king thought on the surface that he was in power when in reality Bismarck was the one who really made the decisions. Or at least Bismarck liked to think that he was. The king did surprise Bismarck a few times by standing up to him over the 26 years when the two were essentially in power together. 
But for all intents and purposes, Bismarck would have a vision, and if the king went against it, then the king would be so beaten down, so battered, so bullied, so, you could say, convinced and hold up air quotes, that's what Bismarck would tell you, or he would say persuaded, or some gentle word like that. But it was utterly brutal the way Bismarck treated his king. And I'm not just talking about that in the sense of he should have been better as a subject of the king. He should have held his king in more reverence, etc, etc. I just simply mean in the sense of respecting your elders. Bismarck went way overboard to the extent that the two of them were often in tears. But generally, even if they were in tears, Bismarck would get his way. He would always get his way. And if he didn't, he threatened to resign. He complained about his stomach problems. He found the king, if the king tried to hide from him, which did happen. He found the king, and the king eventually succumbed. Because at the end of the day, that central message burns through the pages, and hopefully will burn through this podcast recordings. The idea that the king originally hired Bismarck because he thought that no one else could do what Bismarck could do. He thought Bismarck was something of a fixer, some kind of miracle maker who could make all his problems go away. The king wasn't thinking all that much past this military reform bill that he needed passed. He had no idea what Bismarck had in store. But the whole time Bismarck was in power, Wilhelm went along with this uneven partnership because he genuinely believed that if Bismarck left the scene, he, the king, and all of his subjects would be lost. Maybe this very belief was part of the spell that Bismarck managed to weave over the king's mind. Maybe the king had always imagined that he would have a very hands-on minister and he wouldn't have to do all that much himself. If that is true, if he had never really wanted to be all that engaged with running the actual government of Prussia, then oh boy did he have his wish with Bismarck. I'm sure he didn't imagine there existed a potential minister-president like this. The few times he had met Bismarck before, and I'm thinking early times, so perhaps 1834-35. You remember that time I mentioned in a previous episode where they met during a ball? And it's not like sparks flew or anything. They just literally met. Bismarck was typically tall and imposing, but for some reason he was wearing his lawyer's uniform. And Wilhelm commented and saying, I suppose the lawyers are accepting recruits for the guards now. And the two of them chuckled and it was great fun. But there was no indication that Bismarck was about to be the permanent thorn in the king's side for really the latter third or so of his life. It's also fascinating to watch Bismarck work because, at least in the initial year, there was really no indication of how his regime would go. And, if anything, it looked like Bismarck had become more extreme and more reactionary and less reliable, less stable to have there to run the country. Did you really want someone who was going to cause a scandal every other month and bother all your neighbours to no end? Not particularly. For someone like Wilhelm, who liked to keep his Prussian army marching past him, Wilhelm kind of reminds me, in a way, of the Prussian king who ruled just before Frederick the Great. I can't remember what his name was. He was Frederick the Great's father, anyway. All the Fredericks, after a while, become a bit of a blur, so I don't really know his name. But I know, for some reason, it's burned into my mind that he ruled from 1713 to 1740, and during that time, he built up an enormous army. But he never actually used it. He liked to watch it march past, he liked to pin medals on his little soldiers and be a good soldier king, but for all intents and purposes he didn't want to use it, because he was too fond of it. And that really seems like the way Wilhelm I was here. Wilhelm was not particularly aggressive 
which might surprise you when you learn how enthusiastic he was about his army. It was his pride and joy, and that's why the military reform bill was such a deep-seated personal issue to him. As an officer, and as someone who deeply cared about the honour of the Prussian army and its legacy and its history, and of course its future, it would be above his imagination to suggest that in the space of eight years or so, Prussia will engage in three successful wars, expand her territory tenfold, and will massively increase her power and dominance in a German empire. Oh, and by the way, Wilhelm, you're going to become the first emperor of a new German empire. There you go, congratulations. Why are you so surprised? That's how I imagine Wilhelm as a figure. It's probably incorrect, but that's how he sticks out in my head. But that brings us to another point which will come up again. This idea that everyone was seeing Bismarck for the first time around this point. In the years before the Danish War, and in the years before he became this known expert on diplomacy, and he ruled Germany at the centre of a victorious German Empire, which knew no challengers, etc., etc., in 1871. Most histories start in 1871, as we said, but most interpretations of Bismarck start in 1871 as well. And for those people who lived before that period, it almost seemed as though they didn't really know what to expect from Bismarck, because in their defence, all he'd really done is serve as ambassador to Frankfurt and then to Russia, and a little while as well to France, but... No one had really taken the time to get to know Bismarck, which is understandable, because diplomats like him, or at least diplomats who appeared to be like him, were a dime a dozen in the 19th century. Privileged, relatively wealthy, well-connected, of the nobility, got a good job. The list can go on. Of course, Bismarck was not like everyone else. He was not like anything Prussia had ever seen. He was utterly unlike anything Europe had ever seen. The only real comparison would be to Napoleon, just from the level of conquering that went on. But I think it would be more correct to say Bismarck was more like a, a diplomatic Napoleon, because he conquered with soldiers, but he didn't command any of them. So yeah, I'm going to copyright that. Diplomatic Napoleon. But just like it took Europe a while to clue in to who Napoleon was, it is going to take Europe a while to kind of get to grips with the Bismarck character. The most that King Wilhelm knew about him was in his irritatingly contrarian dispatches, and the few times when he had met him in person and he'd been a loyal subject. There was a history there, but this history was nothing compared to what the two would do together later on. There was no real foreshadowing of how Bismarck would dominate Wilhelm. There was a sense of foreshadowing in how Bismarck dominated the Prussian government, because he had been very domineering with pretty much all of his subordinates before, and their different records can testify to that. There's no conspiracy launched by Queen Augusta to try and blacken Bismarck's name. Sorry, Otto, but sometimes you were just a little bit of a dick, to be honest. But the issue with Bismarck's latest promotion is that he couldn't fly under the radar anymore. It's very hard to be minister-president of a great power like Prussia and not receive an awful lot of foreign attention, be that newspaper editorials where they comment on your character or your previous record if they do enough research, that kind of thing, or just profiles of who you are, judgments of your policies, communiques with foreign leaders, contacts with important politicians in other states, with monarchs, etc, etc. Once you reach a position of enough power, people start to take notice of you. And now it was clear that people were taking notice of Bismarck, and they would continue to take notice of him endlessly for the rest of his 28 years. 
I would love to have been a fly on the wall when the penny kind of dropped with people and they realised they weren't dealing with another stand-in minister president. They weren't dealing with a kind of what you would call in wrestling, just for example, a transitional champion. Someone who's only really there to pass the championship onto someone else and the whole thing's arranged with good booking and everything to make a new star. Bismarck wasn't there to make a new star. He was the star. And his star would be the one that guided Prussia for the next nearly three decades. We're obviously not going to cover all of that now, but this is the beginning of that. And I'd love to know if Bismarck knew what he had in the tank. I had this image of him, like, looking ahead to as far as possible and trying to gauge how long he could last. Of course, Bismarck believed he was on borrowed time anyway, because he believed that King Wilhelm was not going to be that long for this world. By 1862, after all, Wilhelm was 65, and he was only going to get older. His brother, don't forget, had died before his 70th birthday, so there was no reason to suspect that Wilhelm would live all that long. To everyone's surprise, even to Bismarck's, this was one of the few things that did take him by surprise. Wilhelm lived till he was 91, but only because of this, Bismarck also stayed on. Only two years after Wilhelm died, Bismarck was out of the picture, and he was never to return to it, despite the fact that he liked to maintain a correspondence with several important German foreign office officials, and he was generally seen by the time that he left the scene as such an expert, and he was requested to do different speaking tours, all these different things. We'll talk about that when we come to it, but of course, his own contemporaries in Germany were able to pass judgment on him, and we have several opinions handed down to us from contemporaries who lived during this period and who were well-connected enough to meet with Bismarck regularly. Some of these accounts are really... I mean, depressing is the wrong word because it's almost hilarious to get these really dark and gloomy interpretations of him. And then on the one hand, find an account from a different official who was utterly in awe of how Bismarck did things, even though Bismarck would treat him really badly, like he was just a number. I really think it depended on how people reacted to someone like Bismarck, whether they liked him or not. But suffice to say, there was plenty of people that Bismarck rubbed the wrong way. Fortunately, Albrecht von Roon wasn't one of them, but Albrecht von Roon had friends, and several of these friends weren't 100% on side with Bismarck. I always do my best to cut down names in this show because I don't want to bombard you, so let's just say that this guy was one of Albrecht von Roon's friends. I could tell you his name, but I wouldn't really give you all that much extra in this context. I could tell you that he is a very conservative Christian, though. That might help you kind of pick apart what I'm about to quote from here. So, Rune's friend wrote the following in May 1859. Bismarck has great moral courage. A decisive spirit expresses itself in the energetic tone of his voice in all his speeches. He can sweep people along with him. He has no previous political training and lacks a thorough political education. He has a series of contradictions in his character. There is an absent-mindedness in him and he can easily be stirred by sympathies and antipathies. He is thoroughly honest and straight, but his policies can be immoral. By nature, he has an unforgiving, vengeful tendency, which his religious sensibility and nobility of character keep under control. There are some parts of this extract that were correct. Bismarck did have a series of contradictions in his character. You could write that a thousand times and it would still be very true. It's one of the things that is so fascinating about Bismarck, but it really does make putting him in any kind of box kind of hard. 
But one thing that Rune's friend here does say, that Bismarck was honest and straight-talking, that most of us would surely take issue with, considering how much we watched Bismarck lie his face off to his friends, to his family, to anyone who would be on the other receiving end of a lie that Bismarck thought he could get away with or benefit from. Honest or straight-talking doesn't exactly do justice to who Bismarck was. Bismarck just wasn't the kind of character who saw telling the truth as all that important. And you have to remember as well, from the age of 32 when Bismarck started to take politics really seriously, he quickly found that not telling the truth actually served him quite well in certain situations. As far as Bismarck was concerned, after all, politics was supposed to be an arena where a statesman would do anything to increase the state's power. Just like in the case of a state, where a state is supposed to do anything in its own power to better itself and take advantage of opportunities that will increase its advantages and better its citizens and improve its strategic position, etc, etc. It went both ways. But to Bismarck, this view is interesting because whenever he says, and he says this a lot in his memoirs, that political infighting should end because that would undermine the stability and security and unity of a state, basically everyone should just get along, what he's really saying isn't that he wants people to be supportive of each other and he wants everyone to be happy with what he's doing. Actually, what he's saying is pretty much that he wants all the people in the Landtag, those liberals who had been opposing him for so long, who had been fearful of his rise for sure, and who continued to oppose the reform bill, What Bismarck is arguing is that they should essentially be quiet. They should stand aside, or at the very least, they shouldn't obstruct the government of Prussia when it's trying to do something that is clearly associated with the national security and the national honour. How on earth could a country defend itself? How could a nation-state defend its interests if people who called themselves citizens were at the same time stopping it, actively stopping it from improving its defences and increasing the strength of its arms. How could that be a situation that any state leader, any official, any patriot, lets go unchecked? According to Bismarck, this was the situation underway in Prussia at the moment. And according to Bismarck, this was wrong. As far as Bismarck was concerned, those statesmen who called themselves patriots on the one hand, but then on the other, voted against important legislation in Parliament, or who identified as a liberal, and then stopped the king getting what were his royal prerogatives, these people were ideologically biased. These people were not suitable for government. They weren't suitable for politics, because they put ideology, they put their political beliefs before the betterment of the state. And that, to Bismarck, was something that you just should not do. If it sounds a little bit on the revolutionary side, then that's really because it was. This is the germination of what would come to be known as Realpolitik. It was an ideology which Bismarck had spelt out before, most notably in those letters to Leopold von Gerlach in 1857, in May and June of that year, I believe, when Bismarck essentially laid out his manifesto of how he felt about different countries and explained why Gerlach was, for example, wrong about the French and wrong about not wanting to team up with France. The ideology of Napoleon III in Bismarck's mind wasn't as important as defending Prussian interests. And if you wrote off a country like France because you didn't like its emperor or you didn't like the way the emperor came to power, then you were immediately, and Bismarck used the chess analogy an awful lot, you were immediately taking your pieces off the board. You were tying your arm behind your back, both arms on some occasions, 
Because if you rule out France because you don't like its leader, what's to stop you ruling out any other country? Why should you rule out Napoleon III when Napoleon III is just as interested as you are in getting a favourable agreement that benefits France? If representing Prussia you can get a good deal with the French, one that potentially is to the detriment of Austria, why should that not be pursued? So long as you were ignoring the French, you were ignoring a potential avenue where Prussia could increase its power and influence. And this was how Bismarck saw the French. And it wasn't, I'm using the French as an example, but that's to say that he didn't see the French in this light because he was particularly fond of them or because he liked to think he had a good rapport with Napoleon III. It was never personal with Bismarck. It was always business. Treatment of Napoleon III was a policy that Bismarck pursued for Prussia's gain. Not because he thought Napoleon III was a swell guy, but because doing this, forgetting how you might feel about Napoleon III, ignoring the issues you have with the way he came to power and putting Prussia first, that was how all statesmen should act. They should ignore ideology, just like you should ignore ideology when you're a politician at home, you silly liberals, and you should stop blocking this military reform bill yesterday. This was how Bismarck felt. It was how he saw politics. And interestingly, in the first few weeks of his regime, he seemed to be in a sharing mood because it seems as though he wanted to clue his peers in on how he felt about Prussian politics and just politics generally. Bismarck didn't want to make friends necessarily. After all, he had no political party. All he would do for the next few decades would be to balance the different parties off against each other and try and gather enough deputies around who were loyal to the king. But he would fight against Catholics, against socialists, against liberals for the duration of his regime. So obviously what he's about to say here doesn't work, but it shows something of the ideology within Bismarck that he at least was willing to put this thesis forward as a guide to how all Prussian politicians should conduct themselves. Of course, this speech here is what's better known as the blood and iron speech. You don't see the blood and iron speech mentioned in the context of, well, Bismarck just wanted to tell his peers how he really felt about Prussia and its politicians. He wanted to show them why realpolitik was important. And he just gently nudged them in a specific direction so they would begin to see things his way. No, as we know by now, the Bismarck story doesn't quite flow like that. Bismarck wanted greater cooperation in Prussian politics, and he basically wanted the liberals not even necessarily to stand aside, but perhaps just to be a little bit less over the top when it came to opposing pretty much everything that fell from Bismarck's mouth. On the immediate horizon was the military reform bill, but because we know Bismarck didn't care all that much about that, it's very likely that Bismarck was just applying this whole thesis, this whole way of looking at things, to anything that the Prussian statesman might do in the future. Who's to say that a bill which was really important to Bismarck would not come across the land tag in the future? He could do his best to make sure that this wouldn't happen or that the bill would be passed by decree or something to that effect. But it was always possible that he would need the land tag on his side. And it was always possible that at that stage he would have to appeal to their better nature. Of course, Bismarck would view this situation as akin to a nightmare. But I like to think of these different possibilities and eventualities when weighing up his character at this stage. Because you still see it very much, very much in a kind of stage of metamorphosis where he's not exactly sure who he is or what he's going to be like as minister president but he's certainly showing some interesting signs 
Of course, this speech, the Blood and Iron speech, which we will get to just a wee minute, this Blood and Iron speech wasn't seen so much as a sign as a massive red flag by even his allies. Even Albrecht von Roon, as we'll see, was utterly appalled by what Bismarck had said. But what had Bismarck said? Well, on the 30th of September, 1862, Bismarck performed what has come to be known as the Blood and Iron speech. But as we will see, and as we've already said, there was an awful lot more to it than that. So let's quote from it now. This is what Bismarck said on the 30th of September, 1862. Germany is not looking to Prussia's liberalism, but to its power. Bavaria, Württemberg, Baden may indulge liberalism, and yet no one will assign them Prussia's role. Prussia must build up and preserve her strength for the advantageous moment, which has already come and gone many times. Her borders under the treaties of Vienna are not favourable for the healthy existence of the state. The great questions of the day will not be settled by speeches and majority decisions. That was the great mistake of 1848 and 49, but by blood and iron. Actually, what Bismarck said was iron and blood, but blood and iron is the version that history has given us for a variety of reasons. Iron and blood is also what his opponents focused on, without really looking into much of what he said beforehand. To many, this seemed like a call to arms in a way. It seemed as though Bismarck was saying that nothing will be solved by any other means except by force. The great questions of the day? That could literally be applied to anything. It didn't have to just mean politics. Yet the attentive listener, and I'm sure there are many, will know that this is only what Bismarck had been saying all along. Even though he hadn't been given the massive platform on which to say it, these were Bismarck's ideals, and they'd been virtually unchanged, I think at least, from the moment that he arrived in Frankfurt and he started to really see the world in a different light. Because before then, if you'll remember, before he'd had any experience really of diplomacy, he was very much seeing things as they were reported. But once he had first-hand experience of how the world worked, he became much more, I would say, cynical. And at the centre of this cynicism was how he felt about the Austrians. But again, he was only saying here what he'd been saying all along. And some could call this his manifesto. It was a manifesto he'd expressed before, in those letters to Gerlach in 1857 most particularly. On the other hand, we can argue that Bismarck was right in a way, and I'm not saying he was right to reject all forms of solving great questions except by using blood and iron. I'm not that crazy. What I am saying is that Bismarck's criticism of the liberal persuasion was that they were believing that Germany could be united or that Prussia could be further empowered through liberalism, through liberal unity or through moral power. But these to Bismarck were concepts that didn't quite gel with what Prussia was deep down, a militarist, absolutist kingdom, which had been established and expanded by war and which would be expanded by war in the future again. Bismarck was in effect saying, this is how the world works, ladies and gentlemen, and if you can't get on board, then get out of the way. Of course, his contemporaries weren't willing to hear it this way, and even if they had, they would have fundamentally disagreed with the idea that liberals in different German countries wouldn't one day be able to unite Germany under one flag with one king or emperor, and all war would have to be avoided. It is entirely possible that this would have transpired, that liberals across Germany would have united Germany eventually. It would have been a very messy story for sure, but it's possible. But Bismarck didn't believe that this was the case. He believed that Prussia would only be empowered if 
it used force. And furthermore, Prussia would be unable to use force so long as those liberals restrained the abilities of the king to improve his army, to reform his army and empower it. So long as the liberals did this, they were denying Prussia the chance to realise her full potential. And this, to Bismarck, was unforgivable. And what was moral influence anyway? We could ask this with some justification. Do any real examples of moral influence working out exist in history? Bismarck was probably jumping the gun to think that moral influence was totally impossible or a dream. Nowadays, we know moral influence works in diplomacy. We've seen it work with different countries. If a country makes a mistake or has a very bad reputation or does something particularly reprehensible, it will be sanctioned. And if it's not sanctioned materially, it'll be sanctioned psychologically or morally. People will boycott it. You know what I mean, etc, etc. There will be sanctions. There is a reason why certain states are considered no-go areas or certain governments are viewed as not particularly good. Some countries not very savoury because they have a bad human rights record. Because their government is utterly corrupt. The list goes on. Moral influence can work. It can work in today's society because of the international organisations that basically give these ideas power. But in the 1860s, Bismarck was probably right to think that moral influence was asking too much of his contemporaries. We'll see in episode 8 how moral influence works out for the British. Because in that case, they basically wanted everyone to stop fighting because it looked bad for them that they were not actually intervening militarily, as the Danes had hoped. The British stayed aloof, insisting all the time that everyone should stand down, but not willing to do anything else other than use words. And those words were not much use when Prussian and Austrian armies were on the march. This was Bismarck's ideology coming to life, but he had laid it down here for his deputies to listen to and, he hoped, understand, and he'd also written it in private many times before. Prussian expansion would probably come at Germany's expense, Just look at the different small neighbours surrounding Prussia's lands, and you do the math, my fellow deputies. Only force would realise this expansion. You are very unlikely to have the King of Hanover or Bavaria voluntarily giving up his throne simply because his citizens wished it to be so, especially if he had an army under his own command. All Bismarck cared for was Prussian advancement. That is a very important point to emphasise and we will get to the nitty-gritty of why he cared so much about advancing Prussia's position. We're going to give you the long story in the future, but for now, if you can't wait for that, the short story is that Bismarck wanted to increase the power of Prussia, because as Minister-President of Prussia, the more powerful the country, the more powerful the office of Minister-President. That seems to be as close to a consensus as we can get on why Bismarck did what he did. There's variations within that, of course. Sometimes he get a bee under his bonnet about a specific thing, but for the most part, the end to Bismarck was power. Power which he could not do without. Power that made him ill. Power that he wished he did not have, and when he did have it, he wanted isolation. To go to his estates and to essentially just watch the sun coming up. But if he did that, if he pulled a Thanos, if he clicked his fingers and disappeared into his estates forever, Bismarck is the kind of guy who would quickly, very quickly indeed, get bored. And before long, he'd be writing to those same political contemporaries of his and trying to see if there was a way back into the post of minister-president that he had just willingly abandoned. It was very unlikely. In fact, I think it's impossible to imagine Bismarck ever giving up the post. 
He does give it up briefly for a little while. I think it's 1874 or 75 or something when he's in particularly poor health, but he goes back to his old position pretty much instantly. So we can state pretty safely and for the record that power was Bismarck's ultimate pursuit. But in order to reach that power, all of the different elements had to fall in line. And Bismarck believed they wouldn't fall in line so long as this land tag was ruining all of his plans. We can also learn more about what Bismarck thought and what he was trying to get across in that Blood and Iron speech if we look at the previous paragraph to that speech, which often is not mentioned at all. So here you go, a further example of why context is important. And I saved this previous paragraph because the Blood and Iron part is the most famous and I wanted to dig into that, but I thought it would be more effective, now that you know what he said, to bring it back around and show how he arrived at that point. Just listen to the amount of times he mentions constitution as well. That should give you an idea of how he feels. And he mentions it in a negative way. And by that, he was probably hinting strongly that Prussia would be better off had the constitution of 1848 not been agreed to. Which is an odd thing, because that very constitution gave Bismarck the seat that he now sat in. But that's a talk for another day. For now, let's just look at that previous part of the speech which went as follows. There is talk about the sobriety of the Prussian people. Yes, the great independence of the individual makes it difficult in Prussia to govern with the constitution, or to consolidate the constitution. In France, things are different. There, this individual independence is lacking. A constitutional crisis would not be disgraceful, but honourable instead. Furthermore, we are perhaps too well educated to support a constitution. We are too critical. The ability to assess government measures and records of the public assembly is too common. In the country, there are a lot of conspiratorial characters who have great interest in upheavals. This may sound paradoxical, but everything proves how hard constitutional life is in Prussia. And it was then, of course, that Bismarck launched into the second half where he talked about iron and blood. If it reduced Prussian effectiveness, which Bismarck seems to be hinting at, that the constitution of 1848 did, then that constitution should go, because nothing should get in the way of Prussian expansion or interests. Perhaps instead of constitution, you could put land tag here. Maybe that's what Bismarck was trying to get at. It certainly makes a lot more sense, because... At least in that respect, you can understand who his target audience really was. Those same deputies he was reading the speech to. But maybe saying, hey, we should get rid of the land tag, sounds too suggestive. So Bismarck used a euphemism of constitution instead. Either way, whatever he was getting at here, perhaps he was just being contrarian for the sake of it. But when he reached the point of blood and iron, he was greeted with stunned and mostly horrified silence from those same persons who sat across from him. But as we've said, these views were by no means brand new. Bismarck had said all these things and more beforehand. The only problem was he hadn't used as big a platform as the budget committee of the Landtag in order to make it, because the speech quickly got out. An interesting precursor, and we've encountered this before, but I wanted to reread it to just kind of rejog our memories. Bismarck wrote a letter to Schleinitz, that's Alexander von Schleinitz. Remember that foreign minister who didn't last all that long and who Bismarck basically replaced at this point? Well, Alexander von Schleinitz received a letter from Bismarck in May 1859. 
So for context's sake, this is just after Bismarck is appointed ambassador to Russia. In fact, he's only just settled down comfortably in Russia in St. Petersburg at this stage. And he writes the following letter to Schleinitz at that stage, saying, This tendency of German middle state policy will emerge with the steadiness of a magnetic needle after any temporary swings, because it is no arbitrary product of individual circumstances or persons but a natural and necessary result of federal relationships of the small states. We have no means to cope with this in a lasting satisfactory way, given the federal treaties. I see in our relationship to the German Confederation an infirmity of Prussia, which we shall sooner or later have to deal with iron and fire. Iron and fire? Could this be iron and blood before iron and blood was famous? Bismarck is certainly following the same principles here as he later would do in his Blood and Iron speech. Those principles being that anything which gets in the way of Prussian aggrandizement or empowerment should be put in the bin. In this case, Bismarck believed the German Confederation should be put in the bin, because that same Confederation was essentially standing in the way of what Prussia could do if only all those little German states weren't bound up together. To put it another way, if all those little German states were independent and weren't on particularly good terms with each other, then that would have meant Prussia would have an easy time of it swallowing them all up individually. The problem was that they were all united by common treaties, almost by a common alliance, although that particular detail was kind of shady. In any case, Bismarck believed that the German Confederation was a hindrance, that it wasn't a help, and that it should be broken by Prussian force because Prussia's interests should trump all others. So, there is a bit of foreshadowing here, but there is the key difference between private and public speech. Although Bismarck had been saying this all along, and he probably believed on some level that people understood where he was coming from after all these years, he had never said it on this stage before, where coverage of what he said could be broadcast to the entire world. That was huge, and Bismarck underestimated the impact this would have. Although his rivals and his allies were a bit perturbed and horrified at first, the situation only really started to get out of control when reports on the speech began to emerge and more attention was focused on it. A new audience was now seeing Bismarck's views for the first time and a great proportion of them, it has to be said, were not at all impressed. This looked to them almost medieval in its conception. How narrow-minded was the new minister-president that he believed the only way Prussia could be improved in life was through war, and how also narrow-minded was he to believe that anything which got in the way of using force should be dispensed with too? Was there nothing more to life in Prussia than warfare, or the betterment of the army? Who was this guy? Where on earth had the king found him? We can imagine Prussians having conversations like these, and even those people who had supported Bismarck and who had sponsored him as patron or given him advice as mentor, etc., etc., they were probably eyeing each other up nervously and wondering exactly what had happened and when to this prodigy that they had once thought correct to point in the right direction. Now they were probably regretting that decision. If they'd only done nothing, perhaps this crazy guy would never be on this louder stage, making speeches which they were now themselves partially responsible for. Maybe if we hadn't humoured him all this time, he wouldn't be so demonic, domineering and out of control now, they may have thought. 
So there were already people starting to second-guess the king's decision to appoint Bismarck, but there was another significant group of people in the country, the liberals, that is, who believed that this was all, essentially, a big show. That Bismarck had been appointed, yes, deliberately, by the king, for the express reason of provoking them, and then, once they reacted, as they predictably would when a bear is prodded enough times, the king would throw his hands up in the air and say, look how aggressive these liberals are, they must be repressed and destroyed. Had Bismarck just been hired to insult the liberals? Owing to his reputation as the Mad Junker, which some people still remembered, and certainly his reputation as no friend to liberals, it's fair to say that if the king was to appoint anyone to this position of red flag to the liberal bull, it would surely be Bismarck in that position. These liberals also had contemporary examples of when things like this had happened. You only had to look to France in 1851, just before Napoleon III became emperor for life, to see a mirror image of this happening in Paris in 1851. News of Bismarck's speech quickly spread, and it also became painfully apparent to Bismarck that he had actually underestimated not an enemy, but himself. And by that I mean he'd underestimated just how fearful some people were of him and his evidently belligerent views. What was this guy's aim, many people must have been thinking. Did he intend to throw Prussia into the abyss? Did he intend to launch a war with Austria as soon as possible? Could he be trusted? Someone willing to say things like these surely shouldn't be anywhere near a public platform or stage where these views could be heard and affect relations with our neighbours. What if those neighbours retaliate? You can imagine all of these concerns and more would be flowing around the different views of statesmen and ambassadors across the world. It's also easy to imagine that any ambassador, take for example the Prussian ambassador to Austria in 1862, I'm not sure who the person's name was, but say that person was doing his level best in Vienna to make the Austrians believe that the Prussians only wanted the best for them and for Germany. It would have been a hard sell, of course, but mutual respect and basically just pretending that these things were true would have padded things along. There certainly would have been that element of gentlemanly respect and all that kind of thing. Everything would have been kept very, very proper. And then you wake up in the morning after doing a very hard job well, only to see that your chief, your minister president back in Berlin, has said words to the effect that if Prussia doesn't get what it wants, It'll use its iron and blood in order to get it. What does that do to you as minister to this country? As a country which is plainly in the warpath of Prussia, if a war does occur in the near future, doesn't that mean that your position is basically void? Should you even bother staying here, since you're not iron and fire, and you're only going to get in the way? It's a distant example for sure, but it's things like these, it's little stories of people's lives like these and how they were impacted by Bismarck's decisions that often go under the radar. We don't really think all that much about the ripples Bismarck caused necessarily. We just think about the big splashes he made and how those splashes went on to change and to define Europe and the world. We don't really think about the ripples and how those ripples might have ruined someone's day or career or even life, and there were plenty of people like that, such as that theoretical ambassador who must have done an enormous facepalm on the morning of the 31st of September, 1862, when he got that paper and he read exactly what his chief had said back in Berlin. 
All of this stuff was troubling for Bismarck, who probably started to worry that maybe he had been a bit hasty, and maybe he hadn't coated his words in as much sugar as he should have done. But we'll recall that nothing was as important, as necessary to Bismarck in his position now, as his relationship to the king. And he probably never imagined when making this speech, that the speech would lead to a rift with the king. In fact, rift is too generous a word for it. This was Bismarck almost being fired less than a month after he had been appointed, for the express reason that people believed this speech had gone too far. In Bismarck's defence, I should point out here that his arch-nemesis Augusta, as in the wife of King Wilhelm, was at this point on holiday with her husband the king and spent the next week basically wearing him down and saying, look how awful this speech was, look how inflammatory it is to our neighbours, don't you think we should do something? And we imagine also probably a good amount of I told you so was said as well on Augusta's side. And in her defence, she was right. This reactionary guy was not going to make a good minister president. Hadn't she said that several times? And now here was first-hand proof of those assertions. She was well within her rights to sit there and be smug, but she wanted to do more than that. She wanted to get rid of her enemy Bismarck once and for all, and she was going to use her husband the king to do it. She basically gave the king his marching orders, and Wilhelm resigned himself to the fact that he would now have to get rid of this fixer. It wasn't a view that he was to hold for particularly long. I also find it interesting to get the views of other historians, because their perspective is good, because they've viewed all the material, and hopefully, at least, they have drawn sensible, educated conclusions from this material, just like I have. Edward Crankshaw is normally considered the most critical, at least that I've found, of a biographer of Bismarck, but he interprets the Blood and Iron speech as Bismarck trying to introduce the Landtag to his views, and prepare Prussia essentially for what he had planned. Bismarck was, in Edward Crankshaw's words, the loneliest man in the kingdom, but thanks to his rift with the king, Bismarck was about to get even lonelier. According to Edward Crankshaw as well, Bismarck was not someone who hated war. He was someone who would use war wherever it was necessary to get what he wanted. Or, as Edward Crankshaw wrote himself, we're going to quote from his biography of Bismarck here, When a Prime Minister starts talking with relish about iron and blood in his second speech in office and in connection with the rectification of his country's frontiers, it is only fair to take him seriously. And when, within eight years of making that speech, he has personally manoeuvred his country into three brilliantly successful wars, it must be clear in retrospect that the possibility or probability of war, or wars, of Prussian aggrandizement was in the forefront of his mind from the beginning. On another occasion, he committed himself to the popular fallacy that a state must either expand or dwindle. There can be no standing still. But how rectify frontiers? How expand? How upset the boundaries drawn at the Congress of Vienna without war? Bismarck was at pains always to insist that war for him was only a final resort, to be avoided thankfully if the desired result could be achieved by other means. On a number of occasions, he spoke very movingly about the fearful responsibility of sending men to be killed or maimed on the battlefield. On the other hand, at no time, as far as is known, did he ask himself whether the very fact that his aims could be achieved only by war did not put a question mark against those aims. 
this is an idea. It's a school of thought which I find really fascinating. And it's something we will get to grips with later on as we conclude our first part of this story. That fact that the things that we praise Bismarck for, the things that we almost, well, maybe I'm speaking too strongly here, but perhaps speaking from experience, worship Bismarck in a sense. We put him on a pedestal. We see him as a father of the 19th century and a father of our world as well. But what if all the stuff that Bismarck did had been wrong? What if it had been wrong-headed? And what if German unification was not worth those three wars? And what if German supremacy was not worth those three wars? What if it was not worth the deaths of those people who were killed on either side? And what if the dramatic redrawing of borders made our world worse rather than better? What if all of these wars had been fought solely for the purpose of increasing one man's power? Power that he wouldn't share with anyone, power that made him ill, power that didn't suit him, but power that he craved. What if all of these wars and all of Bismarck's chancellorship literally happened because Bismarck wanted power. Is that not something terrifying to consider? That one man's ambition could have this much impact upon history, upon all of our lives. But that's the reality. That is literally, at least, it's one part of the story that you have to deal with when you're looking at Bismarck. Because we know he wasn't a German nationalist. We know he wasn't particularly patriotic in the traditional Prussian sense, at least. And we know that he wasn't some zealot of the monarchy who did it all for his king. So why did he do it? To what end was the third section of Edward Crangshaw's book, but it is a question that still has yet to be answered. To what end, indeed, did Bismarck do what he did? Fortunately for us, we don't have to answer that question right now. We're only in 1862 after all, so it would be wrong to look retrospectively at Bismarck's career in that initial year and think that we somehow know all the answers. We don't know all the answers. Bismarck's contemporaries didn't know all the answers either, and they certainly didn't know yet who they were dealing with in Bismarck. Maybe Bismarck didn't even know himself who he was. What did he want after reaching the peak of the Prussian greasy pole, now that he had the power in his hands, was it any real surprise to see this man arguing for war against Austria, which some people who interpreted the Blood and Iron speech claimed that he was getting at? It seems like no surprise to us in hindsight, considering what Bismarck would do in a few years' time, and you'd be well within your rights to argue that it seems like Bismarck is preparing his audience for war, preparing the Prussian state for war. But if you were to say this to Bismarck, then he would tell you that this was an incorrect interpretation. Bismarck didn't want war, but he also didn't want politics to get in the way of the potential of the Kingdom of Prussia. That was the issue. But even while he says he doesn't want war, Bismarck has a serious knack for contradicting himself, even within his own memoirs. Just a few pages before he analyses the Blood and Iron speech and claims that it was misinterpreted, just a few pages before that, you have Bismarck making the following claim. The Gordian knot of German circumstance was not to be untied by the gentle methods of dual policy. It could only be cut by the sword. It came to this, that the king of Prussia, conscious or unconscious, and with him the Prussian army, must be gained for the national cause, whether from the point of view one regarded the hegemony of Prussia, or from the national point of view, the unification of Germany as the main object. Both aims were coextensive. 
So much was clear to me, and I hinted at it when in the Budget Committee, on the 30th of September 1862, I made the much misrepresented deliverance concerning iron and blood. So if we look deep enough, we find that Bismarck contradicts himself. To claim that the Gordian knot could only be cut by the sword, surely this means that he does want war. Not so, says Bismarck. But he did admit that the speech had aroused some excitement, which is kind of the understatement of the year. But then when Bismarck gets into the actual nitty-gritty details, when he takes the time to examine the blood and iron speech himself, we are left with some interesting points of view. So it's worth detailing what Bismarck himself said about the speech now. For people who were less embittered and blinded by ambition, Bismarck begins, I had indicated plainly enough the direction in which I was going. Prussia, such was the point of my speech, as a glance at the map will show, could no longer wear, unaided on its long, narrow figure, the panoply which Germany required for its security. That must be equally distributed over all German peoples. We should get no nearer the goal by speeches, associations, decisions of majorities. We should be unable to avoid a serious contest, a contest which could only be settled by blood and iron. In order to secure our success in this, the deputies must place the greatest possible weight of blood and iron in the hands of the King of Prussia, in order that, according to his judgment, he might throw it into one scale or the other. Bismarck does provide us with some amount of clarity, but still the question remains, did he want war? And still Bismarck would say to you, it doesn't matter if I wanted war or not. What matters is that I wanted the King of Prussia to be prepared for war. Preparing for war and wanting war are two very different things. And Bismarck believes, or at least he claims that he believed, that his opponents were deliberately misinterpreting what he said. Misinterpreting a speech which, essentially, at its core, again, this is what Bismarck claims, was only an urging to his fellow colleagues in the Landtag to throw their weight behind the King of Prussia, so that in the event of a war, that King of Prussia would be ready to fight the war. What is the difference between preparing for war or wanting war a matter of splitting hairs? Is this question of the offence or the defence really all that important? Don't forget as well, Bismarck liked to use the appearance of being on the defensive during the three wars that he launched. In each of these, against Denmark and Austria and France, Bismarck tried to portray Prussia as the defender of either its own interests, its own independence against an aggressive attacker, or against the independence of, say, the duchies of Schleswig and Holstein, as we'll see in episode 8. Did Bismarck really believe that the Liberals will be converted by this speech anyway? Well, for this, we've got AJP Taylor to examine the speech as well. And he says, This was a statement of fact, not of principle. The Liberals dreamt of uniting Germany by moral conquests. Yet, whoever has examined the Austrian records must recognise that the Habsburg statesman would never have admitted the equality of Prussia, except by blood and iron though it might well have been the iron force of economic power rather than the bloody victory of war which forced the decision. All the great questions of our own day, from the defeat of Hitler to the checking of Soviet expansion, have been determined by blood and iron. It is the task of the idealist to put moral clothing on the victor. 
So here you've got A.G.P. Taylor arguing in, well, he was writing in the 1950s, but arguing in this case that force was necessary to change Prussia's position and prospects, at least if you wanted to do so quickly and not have to wait for several years, as Bismarck evidently didn't want to do. Because let's not forget, Bismarck knew that he was on a timetable. He believed that within the next decade or so, any chance he would have for a free reign in the post of minister president would be gone once King Wilhelm died and his liberal son took over. In a liberal Prussia, Bismarck didn't think he'd get a look in, so he had to achieve all that he needed to achieve now. This may well explain why he acted so quickly in the first place, and why in less than ten years he had three successful wars in the bank. Perhaps these foreign decisions were more influenced by Bismarck's domestic situation than people might have actually been led to believe. Maybe it wasn't simply a case of Bismarck being a genius and seeing the victories that neither us nor his contemporaries could actually see at the time. Or maybe he just felt pressured to act as quickly as possible because he was afraid that his master would soon leave him. In any case, we can at least point out that Bismarck was here being consistent. He was being consistent in so far as he was arguing for a policy of realpolitik. Realpolitik, of course, being that way of looking at international relations which said that you weren't bound by ideological constraints and you just saw the benefit and the betterment of the state above all. Bismarck would never dress up the situation, though. He would never sugarcoat the mission that was before Prussia, even though to do so, in the blood and iron situation particularly, might have been to his benefit. Bismarck would later deliberately offend his peers. He would later go out of his way to make them angry, make them mad, in the hope that they would slip up, but here he sincerely seems to have wanted to persuade his peers to see things his way. In Bismarck's mind, of course, all he was doing was trying to make the liberals see sense. But he underestimated how much people feared him, and he didn't expect to be interpreted wrongly. That much is obvious from the way that he reacted. He wasn't just surprised, he was annoyed, because he thought that people had deliberately misinterpreted what he had said. In actual fact, Bismarck had given them so many examples, and he'd built up such a reputation for himself, that the only real way those contemporaries could interpret his speech was the way that they did. Did Bismarck expect them to think that he was advocating for peace? In response to Albrecht von Roon's shocked and disapproving remarks, Bismarck replied, I only meant that the king needs soldiers. It was not an appeal to use force against the other German states. This is debatable, of course, considering what we've seen Bismarck talk about when he considers that Gordian knot of German politics. Any time he really talked about what was called German dualism, so the idea of whether Prussia or Austria would lead Germany into the future, or whenever he talks about the German states themselves, he seemed to have no real love for these minor German states, many of which were kingdoms in their own right and which Bismarck would have to respect. But, on the other hand, conquering these kingdoms, conquering the likes of Bavaria, Saxony, Württemberg, etc., would massively increase Prussia's land holdings and, of course, would massively increase her prestige as well. The only question was, how on earth was she going to do it? That question could be answered later, but Edward Crankshaw adds that Bismarck's very plans were overtaken by this storm of controversy which his first speech created. Crankshaw writes, Bismarck was to pretend that he had not been thinking of war when he spoke of iron and blood, 
but he pretended so many things on so many occasions. Even Rune thought his protege was asking for trouble and reproached him for it. And of course, the whole of liberal Germany cried out in indignation. King William was at Baden-Baden enjoying a family party for his wife's birthday. He had not made Bismarck prime minister to provoke a revolution. Crankshaw points out, and we have seen evidence of this, that Rune was pretty horrified at what Bismarck had said. But it's also worth considering whether Rune might not have been embarrassed as well. After all, he had vouched for this guy. And now this minister-president, in his first real public test, had managed to appall his allies, terrify his rivals, and pretty much make nobody happy. So it seemed, anyway. Had Bismarck advocated for war? Rune might have been asking himself if this was the case and Bismarck was in favour of war, would this make Rune responsible for any wars which followed? Was Rune guilty by association for the wars that were to follow? Because without him, there would have been no Bismarck. It's something to consider, but at the end of the day, Rune could not control Bismarck, as he would later discover. And so long as he couldn't control him, he had to rely on Bismarck to make the right decision himself. At the moment, when he first burst onto the scene, Bismarck couldn't, or at least wasn't, bothered to know his audience. And he paid for it. Even ideological allies lamented his speech. Heinrich von Treitschke, and I hope I'm pronouncing that name correctly, but he was a right-wing academic and historian in Germany. Treitschke is pretty much responsible for a right-wing nationalist German point of view in the early 20th century. These foundations would later be built upon by the Nazis and by other people. But Treitschke, for the most part, was very much in favour of what Bismarck did. He was a very big fan of the wars that he launched and the effects that they had because they made Prussia stronger and they realised the dream of German unity, which someone like Treitschke certainly bought into. At this stage, though, Treitschke was not all that impressed with Bismarck, even though he later would praise him. Here, he was critical. You know how passionately I love Prussia, Treitschke said. But when I hear so shallow a country squire as this Bismarck bragging about the blood and iron with which he intends to subdue Germany, the meanness of it seems to be exceeded only by the absurdity. To call it absurd might make us think that it wasn't taken all that seriously. But it was. It was taken deadly seriously. In fact, the seriousness of this situation, which Bismarck had walked himself into, managed to wind its way all the way to the top of the Prussian royal family, all the way into the mind of Augusta, the wife of King Wilhelm, who had always been an opponent and an enemy of Bismarck, and now had an ideal chance to capitalise on this great whoopsie that Bismarck had made on the world stage. How would she do it? Well, she would make very plain just how disgusted she was, although she was also, probably deep down, a little bit satisfied. Above all, though, it was all the more satisfying to get rid of Bismarck, and Augusta really thought that she was about to do so here. She thought this because King Wilhelm, after some persuasion on her part, had agreed. Bismarck had gone too far. Bismarck had created this crisis, and now he must be sacrificed on the altar of it for everything to go away. You kind of get the feeling that Wilhelm really just wanted a quiet life, to be able to walk up and down in the parade grounds, inspect his soldiers, maybe sign a few papers, but not have to really deal with anything to this extent of a crisis. 
Bismarck had promised so much to Wilhelm. He seemed at one point to be the fixer, the man who could make all the king's problems go away. But now he was creating problems. He was actively making the king's job harder, and that just wouldn't do. It seemed as though Bismarck had dug his own grave, and this less than a month into his minister presidentship. Wilhelm, as we said, was persuaded that Bismarck went too far. But it's also worth considering that Wilhelm was angry at Bismarck for creating yet more controversy with the liberals and peeing them off even more when the last thing he needed was this. Bismarck needed to get the liberals on side if that reform bill was ever going to pass. Remember, the whole reason Bismarck had been hired in the first place was to make this pass. But now Bismarck was even further away from the liberals than any minister-president had ever been before. And as a result, that reform bill that Wilhelm wanted so badly was even further away from being realised than it had been when it had first been pawed up by Rune and Wilhelm a few years before. The king would have to confront Bismarck, and he would have to make it clear that, sorry, this just isn't working out. We are surrounded by a whole range of what-if questions when confronted with this situation. Above all, what if Bismarck had just capitulated? What if he had just allowed his king to dispense with him and he had gone off to retirement, to grow fruit trees, perhaps, because we always keep coming back to that idea. What if he had gone off to grow fruit trees? He had just said, all right, I guess I can't get the approval that I need. I'm going off to retirement now where I don't have to deal with any of you. Sure, it would have seemed like the antithesis of Bismarck's character to capitulate like this, but it also would have created a whole new world. It would have created a world in which Prussia and Germany were not the same. And it would have created a world in which Germany, as an empire, did not exist in the middle of Europe. We wouldn't have had all the wars that we had afterwards, and we wouldn't have had the world that we had today. Again, this is what we come back to time and time again in this story. Because of Bismarck, this world is the way that it is. And because Bismarck said that he was going to hang on no matter what, because Bismarck said he was going to resist his king's insistences that he should retire, that he should resign, or that he should be fired... Because Bismarck resisted, we live in the world that we live in today. Bismarck, you might not be surprised to learn, was not about to go down quietly. In fact, he had himself a plan on how to hold on to his position, but it would require an awful lot of manipulation if it was to succeed. Initially, at least, the prognosis was not good. Bismarck waited for Wilhelm at an unused train station while sitting on an upturned wheelbarrow, The circumstances are a bit odd, but they don't exactly make you think that Bismarck had everything planned out. The way he describes it in his memoirs, Bismarck seems to have been like the scolded child, awaiting either the final punishment from a parent or for the parent to look at you deep in the eyes and say, you should have known better, I'm very disappointed in you, and then you just feel like the world's going to end, even though you don't really have a punishment. But Bismarck wasn't going to receive all of that. He wasn't going to accept even the slightest amount of criticism, so it seemed. My object in taking this opportunity, Bismarck explained, was to set his majesty at rest about the blood and iron speech. For my part, Bismarck says, I was torn between the desire of winning over members to an energetic national policy and the danger of inspiring the king, whose own disposition was cautious and shrank from violent measures, with mistrusted me and my intentions. My object in going to meet him was to counteract the probable effect of press criticisms. 
Because Bismarck craved power so much, he also needed to dominate others, and this dominating was an exercise he enjoyed. But what if his back was against the wall? How would he get on when he had to defend himself, when he was on the defensive instead of the offensive, and when his position was very vulnerable indeed? Bismarck couldn't leave his post now after all that he had done to get it. That much was clear. It never seems to have entered his mind that he had made a mistake and now he had to pay for it. The bottom line was that Wilhelm hadn't liked his speech, but Bismarck couldn't lie his way out. So he turned the situation on its head with a brand new tactic, the claim that he had done it all for King Wilhelm. It's really interesting how in this first crisis of his regime, Bismarck doesn't just show us exactly... Bismarck doesn't just show us his ideology in the blood and iron sense, he also shows us what he's made of and how he planned to resist. He reveals his hand, in other words, and that hand was nothing less than the domination of the king, the subordination of the king to Bismarck's will, and as this subordinating was underway, persuading the king that it was within his interests to listen to his minister-president, because that minister-president had the best interests of Prussia and the Prussian royal family in mind, and nobody else, nobody else, Bismarck would emphasise, would be able to go to bat for the king and for the country like Bismarck would. Of course, Bismarck never mentioned to Wilhelm that one of the major incentives for vouching for Prussia and for the Prussian king in this way was that it would make Bismarck very powerful indeed. But that was like the small print, and Bismarck didn't really need to refer to that. What he did need to do was somehow hold on to his position after this first great test. When I begged for permission to narrate the events which had occurred during his absence, Bismarck recalled, Wilhelm interrupted him with the words, I can perfectly see where all this will end, over there in front of the opera house, under my windows, they will cut off your head and mine a little while afterwards. It seemed apparent that, after spending a week with his wife and other royals, Wilhelm's head had been filled with regicide, with images of murdered prime ministers or ministers who had died when Charles I's head had been cut off, or when Louis XVI's head had been cut off. Did Wilhelm imagine he was on his way to the guillotine as well? Perhaps he did, but if he did, then this was a state of mind which Bismarck had to bring the king out of. How was he going to do that? Well, he would harness all of these awful predictions that the king had made about the two of them dying horribly, and he would use these very predictions to fire the king up. Listen to what happens next. This is almost a masterclass of manipulation, and it has to be heard to be believed. Bismarck said, writing in his memoirs, When he was silent, I answered the king with a short remark. And after, sire? After, indeed, the king replied, we shall be dead. Yes, I continued, then we shall be dead, but we must all die sooner or later, and can we perish more honourably? I, fighting for my king's cause, and your majesty, sealing with your own blood, your rights as king by the grace of God, whether on the scaffold or the battlefield, it makes no difference to the glory of sacrificing life and limb for the rights assigned to you by the grace of God. Your majesty must not think of Louis XVI. He lived and died in a condition of mental weakness, and does not present a heroic figure in history. Charles I, on the other hand, will always remain a noble historical character, or after drawing his sword for his rights and losing his battle, he did not hesitate to confirm his royal intent 
with his blood. Your majesty is bound to fight. You cannot capitulate. You must, even at the risk of bodily danger, go forth to meet any attempt at coercion. This was nothing less than an appeal by Bismarck to Wilhelm's prerogatives and royal honour. This was Bismarck saying to his king that you should stand up for your rights, that you should think of your traditions, you should think of the history of Prussia, you should think of Frederick the Great. What if he had been so afraid of the mob, of the liberal tide, of the Enlightenment, that he refused to do what needed to be done to make Prussia great? If Wilhelm would listen to Bismarck here, if he would only gain courage, then his stand would be noble. His stand against the liberals would go down in history, and his divine right demanded resistance in any case when faced down by mere civilians. Bismarck claimed that it was up to him to defend Wilhelm's rights. He claimed that it was better to die with his sword in his hand than to give in to the mob. Here, Wilhelm was having steel put into him, for lack of a better term. Bismarck was trying to fire his king up, and he was trying to make the king realise that he needed to defend himself. More was at stake than what Augusta might think, or what the press might say, Bismarck was saying here. And Bismarck also claims that this reinterpretation, you could call it, of the current crisis, was precisely what the king needed to hear. Bismarck wrote, as I continued to speak in this sense, the king grew more and more animated and began to assume the part of an officer fighting for kingdom and fatherland. In presence of external and personal danger, he possessed a rare and absolutely natural fearlessness, whether on the field of battle or in the face of attempts on his life. His attitude in any external danger was elevating and inspiring. Hitherto on his journey, he had only asked himself whether, under the superior criticism of his wife and public opinion in Prussia, he would be able to keep steadfast on the road on which he was entering with me. The influence of our conversation in the dark railway compartment counteracted this sufficiently to make him regard the part which the situation forced upon him more from the standpoint of the officer. He felt as though he had been touched in his military honour and was in the position of an officer who has orders to hold a certain position to the death, no matter whether he perishes in the task or not. This set him on a course of thought which was quite familiar to him, and in a few minutes he was restored to the confidence which he had lost at Baden, and even recovered his cheerfulness. If Bismarck is telling the truth here, and there is reason to believe that he was, because he stayed on as minister-president for another nearly three decades, then we can see here this younger turned the crisis on its head. It was not about Bismarck or his fitness for office. It was about the king and about the king's durability in the face of the crisis. Wilhelm must defend Bismarck just like he must defend his own rights. He must fight for his entitlements, in fact, just like a soldier would have to fight for his honour. It was a point of honour for Wilhelm to resist and Bismarck insisted that if his king did resist then he would fight by his side with him. But at the end of the day, the ball was in the king's court. Resistance, of course, would honour his ancestors, and the fate of neither Charles nor Louis was to be feared, because to fight to the end, Bismarck claimed, was better than capitulating to the mob. Wilhelm had to resist the mob just as his ancestors had done, and he had to see his duty in preserving the status quo. Or at least that version of the status quo which wasn't as revolutionary as the liberals wanted. 
The end result of this pep talk, essentially, was that the king felt empowered. He almost forgot his old mission to fire Bismarck. He can't have forgotten it entirely, but he certainly didn't try to fire him. And Bismarck concluded, To give up his life for king and fatherland was the duty of an officer, still more that of a king as the first officer of the land. As soon as Wilhelm regarded his position from the point of view of military honour, it had no more terror for him than the command to defend what might prove a desperate position would have for any ordinary Prussian officer. This raised him above the anxiety about the criticism which public opinion, history and his wife might pass on his political tactics. He fully entered into the part of the first officer in the Prussian monarchy, for whom death in the service would be an honourable conclusion to the task assigned to him. The correctness of my judgment was confirmed by the fact that the king, whom I had found weary, depressed and discouraged, had, even before we arrived at Berlin, developed a cheerful, I might say, joyous and combative disposition, which was plainly evident to the ministers and officials who received him on his arrival. So Bismarck, using his talent for manipulation and for turning the whole argument on its head, had showed the king that it wasn't about what Bismarck might say. It wasn't about how the liberals might feel about ideas like iron and blood. It was about Wilhelm's will to fight on. It was about the king enduring a struggle with the Landtag and a question of whether he would resist the civilians for the sake of his military honour, just like any officer would have to resist the enemy and defend his own honour in a military-type situation. There was no war between liberals and the king, but Bismarck was certainly effective at painting a metaphor of that kind, and Wilhelm evidently was in a position to agree and buy into this metaphor. Perhaps this suggests that the liberals weren't being all that paranoid when they imagined that the king was going to destroy them all with this large army that he wanted. But Wilhelm was not that kind of person. Though he valued military honour, and though he resented those liberals who blocked the natural progression of the Prussian army, Wilhelm was not about to make war on the liberals, of course, but using this metaphor was certainly a lot more effective than telling the king that he needed to resist because political reasons. By painting the whole situation in a matter of life and death, of war and peace, of tradition and culture and honour, Bismarck was able to appeal to Wilhelm's innermost sentiments, his most deeply held values, and the king didn't even realise in the process that he was being manipulated in this way. This was the first time Wilhelm had confronted Bismarck about a serious issue. It was the first time Bismarck's career was really in jeopardy. And it was the first time Bismarck bounced back with a force and with a vengeance that seemed to surprise virtually everyone. Including, of course, the king's wife, Augusta, who the last time she had talked to her husband had said that he was, yes, going to get rid of her worst. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. 
Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Enemy. Bismarck escaped these dangers by manipulation, by understanding the person opposite him, by reading them, and then using their strengths and weaknesses, their hopes, their dreams, their fears, to arrive at a point where he was in control. Bismarck reminded Wilhelm what this whole thing was about, what his monarchy was about, and everything else seemed to fade from view. This is symbolic of Bismarck's later approach. He outmaneuvered all his enemies by appealing to the king, and by having the king kept under his thumb. Never again would Bismarck really be on trial or in danger, and for the next nearly 30 years he would use these tactics to cling to power with both hands. He would also manipulate without reservations, and he would use the weaknesses of the king to his advantage. We'll see this particularly in the Congress of Princes episode, which I believe is the next instalment. But we're not there yet. After this crisis passed over and Bismarck was still in one piece, he did try his best, or at least he claims he did, to make some progress on the military reform bill. What he found was that compromise was not possible with Wilhelm. Wilhelm was probably the biggest block on making any headway in the negotiations with those liberals because he refused to compromise on the three-year service law, on the cost, or on any other aspect of the bill. This suited Bismarck, of course, because if the king refused to compromise, Bismarck could essentially throw up his hands and say, Sorry folks, guess we can't solve this issue now. Guess I'll have to stay on as minister-president until we can. So it certainly suited Bismarck that this issue was still in play. But no one was forcing Bismarck to take the next approach that he took. He became more reactionary, more inflammatory, more provocative. He dismissed the land tag again, and he would do this several times over the course of his regime. And he began attacking several elements of the Prussian state. He began with the civil service, which encompassed everything from teachers to doctors to judges to bureaucrats. Pretty much anyone you could think of who did a job behind the scenes in Prussia was a civil servant. And in Bismarck's mind, they possessed far too many sympathies towards the liberals to be allowed to sit there unchallenged. So Bismarck started with the civil service and tried to remake it in his own image. We'll catch up with how he did in that in a future episode. But this act of challenging, of essentially picking a fight with a really important part of the Prussian state, was something which Bismarck did frequently. He would do it again with the socialists and the Catholics, and we've already seen him do it with the liberals. He would mix politics with administration. He would mix the personal with the business. And these attacks were all part of a grander strategy to undermine his enemies in a broad sense and ensure that power stayed in Bismarck's hands. Bismarck even took a page out of his college days 
where he had made a name for himself as the Mad Junker because he had been presented as someone who had more extreme views than even the most extreme people. Even the militarist Manteuffel, who had Wilhelm's ear but not as much influence as he had had over the previous king, couldn't tell what Bismarck was up to, and Bismarck might not even have known himself. Virtually all of Bismarck's colleagues in cabinet were criticised, by the way. Bismarck may have held some resentment towards them for not standing up for him during the Blood and Iron speech, and if it proved anything, if that crisis proved anything to Bismarck, it was that he didn't need them, because if they weren't going to go to bat for him, he was going to essentially ignore them, even more than he had ignored them in the first two weeks of his regime. It was going to be a government of one, just like it had always been a party of one for Bismarck. But with this crisis past, Bismarck was able to turn his attentions to his favourite pastime, foreign affairs. He met on the 4th of December 1862 with Count Carley, the Austrian ambassador to Prussia. And in the course of this meeting, Bismarck declared, quite frankly, Our relations must become either better or worse than they are now. I am prepared for a joint attempt to improve them. If it fails through your refusal, do not reckon on our allowing ourselves to be bound by the friendly phrases of the Diet. You will have to deal with us as one of the great powers of Europe. The paragraphs in the Vienna Decrees have no power to hinder the progress of German history. This meeting, this declaration here, which Bismarck had thrown in the direction of the Austrian ambassador in early December 1862, reads very much like the Iron Chancellor throwing down the gauntlet. Was he basically trying to provoke Austria into making a mistake? Not necessarily. At this point, Bismarck simply wanted it to be clear that Prussia couldn't sit by while Austria became stronger. Just like all states in the world competed with each other, so too did Prussia compete with Austria. And this repeated mention of Austria brings us to an important point as well. What did Austria think of Bismarck's appointment as minister president? How did they react now that one of their most infamous critics was at the very top of Prussia's government? Surely this meant the end of any kind of rapport between Prussia and Austria. Surely this meant that a war was imminent between the two countries. That Bismarck's appointment didn't lead to a crisis with Austria had a lot to do with the man who was on the other side of the fence in Austria, the minister-president and foreign minister of the Habsburg Empire, Count Johann von Reckberg, a Bavarian by birth and a successor to a very distinguished Bavarian family who had switched to Austrian service in the late 1820s and had never looked back. Bismarck had first met Reckberg in Frankfurt, as he recalled in his memoirs. After a sitting in which I had annoyed Reckberg, he stayed behind with me in the chamber and vehemently reproached me for my incompatibility. I replied that I did not know if his anger was merely a diplomatic move or if it was meant seriously, but that his manner of expressing it was of a highly personal nature. We cannot, I said at the time, dispatch the diplomatic business of our states with pistols in the Bockheim Wood. The Bockheim Wood, for the record, was nearby to Frankfurt, and it was a common backdrop for a number of duels which the honour-obsessed German envoys often engaged in. Bismarck continues, Thereupon, Reckberg replied with great violence, Let us drive there at once, to the Bockheim Wood, that is. I am ready to start this minute. 
With that, I considered we had forsaken diplomatic ground. I answered without violence. Why should we drive? There is space enough in the palace garden here. Prussian officers live over the way, and there are Austrian officers in the neighbourhood. The whole affair can be settled in a quarter of an hour. I must ask you to allow me to write a few lines concerning the origin of the quarrel, and I expect you to sign the note with me, that my king may not deem me a bully whom the diplomatic business of his master leads to a duel. After this, the cam did return to the two men's relationship, but Bismarck soon made Reckberg trust him. There's an anecdote Bismarck reveals to us about why Reckberg decided to trust him, where Reckberg accidentally handed Bismarck some sensitive information, some sensitive state documents, let's just say. Bismarck isn't very specific about it. But after this event, Bismarck didn't tell anyone, he didn't leak the documents, he didn't tattle on Reckberg, and Reckberg appreciated it so much, because he was probably bricking it once he found out that he had handed this stuff to Bismarck of all people. But once Reckberg realised that Bismarck wasn't going to make use of it or take advantage of his mistake, he seems to have placed an awful lot of, let's just call it, misplaced or even optimistic trust in Otto von Bismarck. Because of this whole incident though, because of the whole not spilling the beans and exposing Reckberg when he could have done, Bismarck says that he gained the confidence of this irascible, though honourable man, and perhaps, when we both become ministers, his friendship. Bismarck might have been exaggerating somewhat. The two men, although they would respect each other professionally, would never be considered friends. They certainly didn't enjoy the kind of warm correspondence that Bismarck enjoyed with his other true friends, such as Jonathan Lothrop Motley, for example. But Bismarck's relationship with Reckberg was still important because it made what followed possible. And the reason for this is because Reckberg, for whatever reason, probably because he had grown to trust this mysterious Bismarck, thought that he knew Bismarck's character. He thought that he understood what Bismarck was all about, and because of this, he lulled himself into a false sense of security. Bismarck had had some free time at this point, because the Landtag had been suspended from October 1862 to January 1863, and Bismarck determined that the time was right to open this new session at the Landtag with a troubling speech on the 14th of January. Whatever the Constitution grants you as rights, you shall receive in full. Anything that you demand beyond that, we shall refuse. The Prussian monarchy has not yet fulfilled its mission. It is not yet ready to become a purely ornamental jewel in your constitutional structure, nor yet ripe to be inserted as a dead piece of machinery in the mechanism of a parliamentary regime. From this we can deduce several things. Bismarck was opening this session having not really lost a step and having reneged on none of his previous beliefs. The parliament was in the way. If it blocked Prussia's progress, if it blocked Prussia's ability to contest the German question with Austria and emerge supreme, then the parliament was little better than a disease which should be removed from the state altogether. Bismarck wasn't going so far at this point in saying that the parliament should be destroyed, but he was certainly making it plain that the king's absolutist prerogatives were not about to be eliminated, and that if Parliament, or if those liberals, wished to undermine the king's authority, they could do so in a century or so, once King Wilhelm and his descendants had fulfilled their mission. But what on earth was the king's mission that he had to fulfil? What was this mission that Bismarck was referring to? 
Did it mean the mission to dominate Germany with Prussian arms? And that's another interesting trait that he brings to the fore here. He could be as precise as the most anal of German lawmakers if he wanted to. But on the other hand, he could also use a frustrating, disarming amount of vague language in order to get what he wanted. Then after the event, if you interpreted things a certain way, he could claim that you would interpret it wrong. See exhibit Blood and Iron speech. It was almost certainly a tactic, an insurance tactic, to say that he hadn't meant things that way. To say that if you wanted to interpret it that way and you got offended, well, I'm sorry for your hurt feelings, but it's not my fault. It's a tactic we'll see him use again in the future. But we should also see in this speech a very sly allusion to the Austrian issue. A very sly allusion to the fact that this mission, this mission which had yet to be fulfilled, was likely a reference, and a not very veiled reference, to Austria. What other mission could Prussia's monarchy have than to contest the question of who should rule Germany? Bismarck believed that neither he nor the king could afford to retreat on this military reform bill as well. And that's probably what you could consider the third goal of this speech here. He was making it clear to the deputies present that not only were they worthless if they blocked Prussia's progress, but they also had no hope when it came to any notion of Bismarck or the king retreating or compromising or anything like that. They would have the bill in full or not at all. The Prussian constitution meant that Bismarck didn't particularly need to pander to the Landtag. If, for example, and he did this several times, if the Landtag was closed, the running of the state didn't require the Landtag to exist. In terms of passing legislation, of course, it was important to have the Landtag there. But if the Landtag was closed, the king could simply rule by decree. This was what had been set down in the constitution of 1848, and it was a provision which Bismarck made use of extensively. He pretty much passed all of the unpopular legislation that he did through the king's authority, virtually using the king to get what he wanted and to bypass his rivals. This tactic of bypassing parliament as much as possible, and of arguing that when it came down to it at the end of the day, the king was the authority and the law of the land, this was a tactic known as the theory of the whole in the constitution. Since the king was the foundation of the state, and the Prussian dynasty was what made Prussia Prussia, what this meant was that in deadlock, any residual powers which might be lying around or not used would revert to the king and the king's ministers, especially when the land tag was inoperable. This was possible because of Prussia's absolutist legacy, and if you think it sounds a bit convoluted or a bit confusing, then that was really the point. Bismarck wasn't trying to make a legal case for his closing of parliament or for the king ruling by decree. He was just putting up some window dressing, and that was what made it all the more irritating to his opponents. It was blatantly obvious to anyone with a legal background that this wasn't the proper way to do things. It wasn't the proper way to run government. But so long as the king had the absolutist authority, and so long as the king wasn't going to get rid of Bismarck, there was nothing anyone could do. The argument was provocative and a little bit simplistic as well, but Bismarck understood that the Landtag couldn't be reasoned with, and the government still had to be run despite this. The country had day-to-day -day matters to contend with, and they couldn't wait for the Landtag to get on side to make running this government possible. 
for the government to engage in other business, such as investing money, collecting taxes, implementing legislation, etc., etc., they had to be able to overcome the challenges which the Landtag had put in front of them. And it was the Landtag's own fault, Bismarck could argue. He couldn't sit still and wait for Parliament to function properly. And that was why it had been closed. And that was why the King was now doing things his own way. Bismarck's attitude towards the Liberals and towards Parliament in general is interesting because of what he suggested as a solution to the Frankfurt issue. In Bismarck's mind, Frankfurt could be made more effective if only some sense of genuine universal suffrage was brought in. This would transform the Frankfurt Assembly not into a place where all the envoys of the different kings of Germany could gather, but as a place where individuals, where deputies would be democratically elected and sent to represent the interests of the different states. This was an ingenious way to bypass the German Confederation, and potentially to facilitate the aggrandizement of Prussia. It was a scenario where Prussia would be leading the way in Germany, minor states would be overwhelmed by the common German nationalism, and there would be no German state large enough or powerful enough to seem like a viable choice to lead this German national dream into the future other than Prussia. For that reason, Bismarck believed If he crammed the Frankfurt Assembly with loads of freely elected citizens, Bismarck believed they would vote in the way that he wanted them to. Because Bismarck had sensed the change in the air. He had come to believe that German national unity was more and more a possibility rather than a myth. However, of course, and this has to be emphasised, if German national unity was going to happen, Bismarck was not going to allow it to happen. He was going to make it happen himself, and he was going to do this by force, through war, with the Prussian army. The Trojan horse of universal suffrage was something which Bismarck would try again in the German context, and we'll see this happen later on. But for now he was content to use it as a weapon, and it was a weapon which packed a surprising punch. Liberals didn't quite know how to feel about it because this idea of universal suffrage sounded like a liberal thing at the end of the day. But other German dynasties, the smaller ones, so for example the kings of Hanover, of Bavaria or of Saxony for instance, they wouldn't have been particularly pleased with the idea that a massive Frankfurt assembly would be created and that anyone would be eligible to vote for people to sit in it. This would have drowned out their influence and power would have fallen to the state which was in the best position to take advantage of this new era. And that would surely have been Prussia. No other German state was strong enough. It's easy to see at this point in Bismarck's life an awful lot of foreshadowing, but we should emphasise that it was by no means clear, in fact it was not clear at all, that Germany would be unified in summer of 1870 thanks to a war with France, which Bismarck would manipulate into motion. There were several barriers which seemed in the way of any notion of war leading to unification, foremost among them being the moral power of the liberals, who still held the majority of Prussian opinion in their hands, and who still represented, so it seemed, the majority of Prussian opinion in the country. They held the most widely read newspapers, and they could spread their message far easier than any conservative or reactionary politicians could. For this reason alone, and the idea that a liberal vision of Germany could quickly become contagious and spread to other countries in the Germanies, it was hard to imagine a war erupting for the sake of German unification. And it was certainly hard to imagine Bismarck leading the way in that war. 
After all, he had shown himself hardly much of a fan of German national unity, except for when it suited him. German sentiments towards the Prussians as well had to be taken into account, because while Prussian military power was unquestionable, its right to rule over Germany would certainly have been contested, and contested by Austria, but not just by Austria, because even though it's a case of German dualism, Austria versus Prussia, the often forgotten part of that story is that everyone in Germany had to pick a side, and it has to be said that by 1863, very few were willing to pick Prussia in that equation. Most were eager to side with Vienna. Vienna as the cultural and historical capital of the Germanies. Vienna, Austria, as the historical ancestor of German Empire. After all, it had been the Habsburgs who had ruled as Holy Roman Emperors. And that was, for many in Germany, reason enough alone for Austria to lead the way in the German unification. It seems crazy to imagine it now, considering how history progressed, But there was no time machine in 1863. Nobody could have known how history would play out, and that in seven years' time, this unification would occur under Berlin. These difficulties in Bismarck's mind could only be overcome by force. The only way to unify Germany was by force. The only way to expand Prussian lands, to link up the disconnected pieces of territories that she possessed, was by conquering other German states by force. The likes of Hanover or Saxony or Württemberg, etc., were hardly going to hand over their independence, agree to join some German national empire on their free will. At least Bismarck didn't think so. Whether or not the citizens of those kingdoms would fight for their dynasties was another issue entirely. Bismarck may well have focused solely on the Austrian question, and he may well have solved that question and answered it earlier than he did in 1866, had his first full year of power in 1863 been a little less eventful, and arguably gone a bit smoother. Bismarck was confronted by three events in the year of 1863, and he dealt with each event in a different way. Each of these three events, which quickly escalated into crises, are interesting for their own reasons, but we need to turn our attention to the first in this set of crises, the Polish Revolt. The Polish Revolt didn't take Bismarck by surprise, but he may well have been taken aback by the ferocity of the revolution, by the sincerity of those Polish exiles who said to anyone who would listen that they were returning home to fight against the Russian tyranny and establish an independent Polish Republic. Bismarck had lived in St. Petersburg for three years after all, and he knew the Poles well because they had lived on his estates, they had also worked for him, and he had met with several of them. Bismarck spoke Polish at this stage not fluently, but he would speak it fluently later on, and he was by no means ignorant of the importance of keeping Poland down. A quick glance at the map of Europe in 1863 would reveal that Prussia had done very well from the extinction of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Since 1795, Prussia, Russia and Austria had essentially parceled up the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth amongst themselves. By doing so, they had gained access to new lands and resources and peoples. But there was always a chance that the Poles could rise again. Thus putting in jeopardy all of the things these powers had achieved, and the fact that they had gotten not just a little bit accustomed to the idea of holding onto these territories for good. 
On the 21st of January 1863, it was no longer possible to ignore the Polish question. But strangely enough, this revolt only happened in Russia. It was in Russia where the Poles were most thoroughly repressed. And it was in Russia as well that Poles had the fewest rights. And yet at the same time, it was in Russia that the Poles had been most proactive in trying to overturn the status quo. They had only revolted 30 years before, in 1830, and during the course of that revolt, which was predictably crushed with regrettable brutality, the status of Congress Poland was changed in the Russian Empire. Because before, in 1795, the independence or distinctiveness of Poland was at least recognised. Poland and Russia would be united in a personal union. The Tsar of Russia would also be the King of Poland and the Polish Sejm or Parliament would be allowed to function in Warsaw as it had done for centuries. All this was changed following the 1830 revolution though, as punishment for being so rebellious and being so disloyal to St. Petersburg, Tsar Nicholas, the man who led us through the Crimean War, don't forget, made the decision to abolish the old arrangement and to essentially annex Poland so that it would form little more than a province of the Russian Empire. The Polish crown would be removed from history, the Polish same would be closed, and Poles would have nowhere to be represented and nowhere to have their voices heard. At the same time, Russian authorities would crack down on the Polish language and do their level best to eliminate the history of Poland from the map of Europe, trying their best to create in Poland little more than a featureless, rural, unremarkable portion of the sprawling Russian Empire. There's nothing to see here, the Tsar would say. No Commonwealth used to rule these lands, no Polish kings used to ride their white horses, and no winged hussars used to instill fear and terror in their enemies. Oh no, this land was Russian, it had always been Russian, and it will always be Russian. The Tsar was supported in this seriously firm stance by his neighbours. Don't forget, any time the Poles rose up, they would have to deal not just with one power, but with three. Because if you let the Poles in your lands run amok, then it was only a matter of time before they linked up with downbeaten Poles in the neighbouring territories. And before long, you had a Poland coming out of the ashes like a phoenix, threatening the underlying stability of both of those three empires. It was for that reason that the Holy Alliance of Austria, Prussia and Russia worked so well. Those three powers had a vested interest in seeing the Poles kept low. They had a vested interest in ensuring that their dominion over these formerly Polish lands would continue indefinitely. Since 1861, the Tsar had struggled to balance the liberal reforms that he was implementing with the nationalist desires of the Poles. And when I say struggled, I mean there were several revolts and they were crushed with, again, predictable brutality. And you might be forgiven for thinking that the appearance of Poland at this stage in our story is somewhat random. You might also be thinking that between Poland is not yet lost and the Jan Sobieski series and everything else, I'll never be able to get away from Poland, and you could well be right. But it's not random to talk about Poland. Poland would not have been considered random at all in the 1860s. In fact, it would have been considered one among many other pressing issues for the Austrian, Prussian or Russian administration to have to deal with. You can never take your eye off the Poles too long. Because don't forget, as is common with most downbeaten peoples, they had foreign friends. The French were by far and large the biggest ally of the Poles. But the real question, even though expatriate Poles made their capital in Paris, 
The real question remained whether Napoleon III would fight for Poland, or whether he would just use the pen rather than the sword. 1795 can seem like ancient history as well, but don't forget, 1795 was not all that far away from 1863. Bismarck's parents would have known a Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and his grandparents would have accepted the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth as a fact of European history. In fact, Bismarck's generation were among the first to grow up with this gaping hole in the centre of Europe that used to be filled by Poland, but was now filled by the three sovereigns of Berlin, St. Petersburg and Vienna. Once again though, and it's important to emphasise this, the Poles did have friends. Even those countries that couldn't directly support the Polish cause did sympathise with it. We mentioned the French. The French are probably the most important other power in this equation. And it was well known at the time as well that Paris was the capital of Polish exiles. Napoleon III was certainly captivated by the vision of the Grand Duchy of Warsaw which his uncle had created. Let's remember, of course, Napoleon Bonaparte's support of the Polish cause and their resulting affinity and affection for him. So the question on everyone's lips in the early 1860s was whether France would do anything for Poland. Napoleon III certainly wanted to show a commonality and continuity with his uncle's policy, especially considering what he had done up to now, fighting the Russians and the Austrians, advocating for Italian unity. Was it now Poland's turn to be checked off the list? Eugenie, the Empress of France, certainly simplified matters for Napoleon III by showing him a map that she had had made, which showed Poland in all of its glory at the centre of Europe. This wasn't a blast from the past, Eugenie said. This was a map which would soon be implemented, which would soon be real life, and which the Poles would help make a reality if only they had some foreign aid. If Napoleon III had looked at this map, and if he had studied it in detail, then he would have known that it would have been impossible. There were far too many variables floating around to just create Poland out of nowhere. The only way to really create Poland would be to defeat Prussia and Russia, at least. Maybe Austria would let some land go if it was traded for something else. But there was no way that Prussia, or Russia certainly, could allow the Poles to take back the valuable territories which they had gained from them. Consider the Prussian case most especially. West Prussia had been annexed by Frederick the Great in the first Polish partition of 1772. That act of annexing West Prussia, if you want to imagine it in your head, unified East Prussia with the kind of core Brandenburg area. And if you want to see this visualised, if you want to understand the problems of creating Poland out of thin air, so to speak, then look at what happened during the Paris Peace Conference in 1919, when the Allies were faced with a situation where Poland was about to rise out of the Russian and Austrian and German empires. If you've listened to my Versailles anniversary project, which can be freely listened to just so you're aware, then you would have seen for yourself just how many problems this reimagined Poland caused. But even in 1939, when Hitler made his first attack and launched the Second World War, he did so making a target of the whole area of West Prussia, and Danzig in particular. West Prussia, in 1939, was separate from Germany. It was not part of the Third Reich at the time, 
And this to Hitler was intolerable because it separated East Prussia from the main core of Germany. Imagine the reactions of those people who were horrified in 1919 that Germany was going to be split into pieces or of other Germans in the 1930s who relished the idea of taking that land back from Poland and of uniting Germany as it always should be united. And you'll have some clue of exactly how impossible it would have been to resurrect Poland in its full form in the 1860s. It was just impossible. And really, for Napoleon to have done anything other than immediately discount Eugenie's suggestion was pretty irresponsible. But as we've learned before from Napoleon III, he liked to imagine and he liked to see himself as his uncle. And what would his uncle have done? Well, he would have, by now, probably conquered half of Europe. So he wouldn't really need to care what the Prussians or Russians or Austrians thought. Napoleon III wasn't in his uncle's position, of course. So instead of making any real firm decision, he kind of strung the poles along. But if that was the French situation, what were the British doing? The British, at the moment, were led by Palmerston. Palmerston's government was pro-Poland to a degree. It was also vehemently anti-Russian, which had been made plain during the Crimean War. And it was certainly known in London that Poland could be used to undermine the Russian position. There were grand plans for a new Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth on UK constitutional models, using the model of a constitutional monarchy. Some Brits imagined that Poland could be resurrected in the centre of Europe as a newly stable country, which the British would, of course, have a firm ally in. We mentioned Paris as the capital of the Polish exiles, but London was a close second. There was a bureau office for these Polish exiles in London itself. So it was virtually certain that in the event of any kind of Polish incident, the British and the French would be called upon to see if all those promises which had been made during peacetime would be borne out in a time of crisis like this. Had they been housing those Polish exiles for a genuine reason or just because they took pity on them? Were they about to change their policy to the effect that Poland would be resurrected at their expense? Or were all of these just words? Poles waited anxiously for the results, and it is not much of a spoiler to say that they were in the end disappointed with the answer. But this couldn't be known in early 1863, of course. Although those in the know would have noted that this rising, this Polish rebellion, had been building for some time. Since 1861 in particular, matters had gotten particularly acute in Poland and international opinion began to become aware exactly of what was going on in the country and how bad the plight of the Poles was. Public opinion was used extensively at this time. The French and British media already sympathised with the Poles. But in Austria, Russia and Prussia, the issue was a lot more complex. Security for these countries depended on holding on to former Polish land. Again, the Poles continued to produce maps showing what they believed their state should look like in 1863. And you won't be all that surprised to learn that it would have deprived the Austrians, the Russians and the Prussians of that land they believed they needed to survive. At the same time though, perhaps this Polish issue was a great boon for Austria. After all, for the longest time, Austria had been given the cold shoulder by the Russians owing to the whole Crimean War debacle. And they hadn't been getting on particularly well with the Prussians either. But surely in the case of this Polish uprising, 
Here was an issue everyone could agree with. Here was a crisis, which those three powers in the East wanted to see resolved in the same manner. They would want to see the Poles put down, and they would want to see the status quo protected. That, after all, had been the raison d'etre of the Holy Alliance. Wasn't it still relevant now, so long as there were Poles running around? We might expect Austria to behave this way and make the most of a bad situation which had been building for some time and turn the situation around to her advantage in Europe. But Austria didn't do this, and the reason why is provided by the historian Richard Elrod, whose article examined Austria's reaction to the Polish uprising. The consequences were forgotten in the long run, but in the short term at least, they certainly played into Bismarck's hands, as Elrod noted when he wrote... Historians have long agreed that the Polish insurrection produced an important change in European alliances and alignments. The rebellion and the attendant diplomatic crisis threatened to spark European conflagration and temporarily revived the Crimean alliance of France, Great Britain and Austria against Russia. In a broader context, it ended the Franco-Russian alliance, widened the fissures and the entente between Paris and London confirmed the withdrawal of both Russia and Great Britain from European involvement, and further eroded the diplomatic position of Austria. It marked the end of Napoleon III's temporary predominance on the continent, and greatly facilitated Bismarck's policy of achieving Prussian supremacy in Europe and Germany in later years. Bismarck fell heir to a situation exceptionally favourable to Prussian aspirations. The outcome for Austria was very nearly the opposite. So Bismarck, while somewhat surprised by the ferocity of the Polish revolts, didn't take very long to adjust to the situation and take full advantage of it. In this case, it certainly seemed like he had luck on his side, and we're drawn to remember the comment of Edward Crankshaw, who noted on Bismarck's gambler's recklessness as one of the key traits in his character. Certainly, that seems to have been the case now, but Bismarck at the end of the day also seems to have been a lucky man. He reacted to this crisis by siding very publicly and very loudly with Russia from the beginning. This wasn't just because the Russian friendship was most important, it was also because Poland posed the greatest danger to Prussia as well as to Russia. Now, this is not to say that the Poles were causing trouble for Prussia as well. Interestingly enough, Prussia's Poles were very quiet indeed and didn't seem to have any real interest in taking to the field and beginning some kind of guerrilla campaign of independence, like the Russians' polls did. But Bismarck was taking no chances. In his policy, he defied other pro-Polish powers, and he looked only at the Prussian interest. Once again, he was not about to go to bat for pro-Polish sympathetic powers, nor was he about to worry too much about Prussia's image in these circumstances. Image was all very well and good, but if Prussia emerged from the other side of this crisis with a squeaky clean image, but 50% less territory, then that wasn't a particularly good outcome. No, no, said Bismarck. The only outcome he could stomach was a crushing of the Polish rebellion and a return to the status quo. Bismarck might have felt uniquely well-conditioned for a crisis like this, because after all, he had spent three years in St. Petersburg and learned during that time period just what the Russians thought about the Poles and vice versa. He also learned about Gorchakov, his Russian counterpart, and Tsar Alexander II. And now, as Bismarck put it, 
Russia seemed to be the most suitable ally for Prussia, and for that reason, the Poles were going down. As he wrote in his memoirs, It was obvious that, so far as concerned Germany, Prussian policy had no support to expect from Austria. It was not likely that the benevolence with which France regarded our growing strength and the progress made towards the unification of Germany would in the long run prove sincere. But that was no reason for neglecting to turn to account the transistory and miscalculated support and furtherance which Napoleon afforded us. With Russia, we stood on the same footing as with England, insofar as with neither had we divergent interests of capital importance, and with both we were united by an ancient amity. From England, we might expect platonic goodwill, with letters and newspaper articles full of good advice, but hardly more. The support of the Tsar, on the other hand, as the Hungarian expedition of Nicholas had shown, meant in certain circumstances more than mere benevolent neutrality. Bismarck advocated standing with Russia against Poland, and he advocated also opposing any power who tried to empower the Poles at the same time. Prussia's strategic interest meant that she just could not allow the Poles to be independent. It wasn't personal, this was just how great states had to act. They had to look to their own interests first. All states did this, by the way, so while we might sympathise with the Poles, and while I certainly do, it's a bit rich to start considering either the Austrians or the Russians or the Prussians to be especially evil in this regard. Pretty much all states at this point, all empires, had minorities that they would rather never saw the light of day. For me, especially, it's kind of rich to see the British react so negatively towards the crushing of the Poles, when the British were themselves very capable of crushing the Irish just next door. But as I've learned from examining debates like these, when it came to questions of great importance and of the national interest being at stake, the Irish didn't really count in Britain's mind. But how did Bismarck feel about the Poles? Some Poles worked on his lands, some of them were colleagues of his and the Landtag. He respected them, for sure, but he also feared them. They were quiet for now in Prussia, but how long would this be the case for? Prussia simply could not allow a Poland to re-emerge. And on the basis of this foundational principle, Bismarck made his policy. And he had to make a firm policy, because to Bismarck it was obvious that the Polish issue could only be solved by force. Poland posed far too many problems to Prussian security to be solved any other way. Because of this, no mercy should be given. And if you don't believe me, listen to the letter that he wrote to his sister Malvina in 1861. And this was even before the worst excesses of the Polish revolt began. Bismarck wrote, Hammer the Poles until they wish they were dead. Of course, I'm sorry for them, but if we want to exist, we have no choice but to wipe them out. Wolves are only what God made them, but we shoot them all the same when we can get at them. Another way of phrasing this is to say that, to Bismarck, the Polish issue was not personal, it was just business. He even wrote to a subordinate in 1862 the following year that Every success of the Polish national movement is a defeat for Prussia. We cannot carry on the fight against this element in accordance with the rules of civil justice, but only in accordance with the rules of war. Any time the Poles reared their ugly heads, it was a matter of war for Prussia. Whether this war was undeclared or not, because a Polish re-emergence had so many implications for Prussia's future. 
We should note here Bismarck's priorities. His attitude towards Poland was grounded in similar principles to his attitude towards Austria. That being, anything which restricted or endangered Prussia's potential should be opposed and overcome and ultimately destroyed. Bismarck wrote in his memoirs the trouble that the Russians were having in keeping the Poles down, saying that Russia afforded herself no security against fraternization with Poland I was able to gather from confidential intercourse with Gorchakov and the Tsar himself. Tsar Alexander was, at that time, not indisposed to withdraw from part of Poland, the left bank of the Vistula at any rate, so he told me in so many words, while he made unemphatic exception of Warsaw, which would always be desirable as a garrison town and belonged strategically to the Vistula Fortress Triangle. Poland, the Tsar said, was for Russia a source of unrest and dangerous European complications. Its Russification was forbidden by the difference of religion and the defective capacity for administration among Russian officials. Were it our task to Germanize Poland, we should be equal to it, because the German population was more cultivated than the Polish. The Rus had not that sense of superiority which was so needful for ruling the Pole. Russian administration must therefore be limited to as small a portion of the population as the geographical situation permitted. This might seem like Bismarck was being overtly critical of how the Russians did things, but at the end of the day, he was determined to prove how useful he could be to the Tsar. Prussia would help the Tsar because their interests were aligned. The very day of the Polish insurrection, as if to prove this point, King Wilhelm of Prussia ordered the mobilisation of four Prussian army corps on the Russian border. This would also, of course, keep a handle on those Poles who lived in Prussia rather than Russia, and who might be tempted to take advantage of the situation across the border. The Russians were also active in this regard. The Russian ambassador to Prussia requested and was granted an audience with Wilhelm, and he requested in the course of that meeting support from Prussia. Wilhelm promised this support enthusiastically. He had no scruples about crushing Poland either. Had his ancestor Frederick the Great not acted as he did in 1772 with the partition of Poland, Prussia would have been nowhere near as powerful as it now was. It was up to Wilhelm to defend this legacy, as Bismarck was trying to do, but Wilhelm rarely gets much flack. It's an interesting question to ask, why is this, since Wilhelm was just as determined as Bismarck was to keep the Poles low, but in our heads, or at least in my head, Wilhelm often becomes little more than a sympathetic father figure of the German Empire. Perhaps he's sympathetic because we know all that he had to deal with when it came to Bismarck. But with the Polish issue, at least, the king and the minister-president certainly saw eye to eye. So the Prussians and the Russians were doing things the same way, but what about Austria? Well, Austria was a weird case. Vienna should surely have been worried about empowering the Poles, because she had gained from the partitions too, and she had Polish subjects that she had to balance in her ramshackle empire. But weirdly, Austria sided not with Prussia and Russia, but with the British and with the French. Bismarck notes that over the course of 1863, Austria voiced its approval of an Anglo-French solution to the crisis three times. On each of these three occasions, the proposed solution was more and more insulting to the Prussians and the Russians who would have to deal with the fallout. On one of these occasions, a six-point plan was recommended to fix the Polish problem, and this plan included Polish language rights, freedom of expression, 
and proper representation, as well as Polish statehood in some form. This would of course have been a nightmare for the Prussians and Russians, and they could never have allowed it to pass, and they did not. But how do we explain the Austrian stance? Bismarck interpreted in his memoirs in the following way, writing... In the Polish question, Austria is confronted by no such difficulties as for us are indissolubly bound up with the re-establishment of Polish independence, difficulties incident to the adjustment of the respective claims of Poles and Germans in Poland and West Prussia, and the situation of East Prussia. Our geographical position and the intermixture of both nationalities in the eastern provinces, including Silesia, compel us to retard as far as possible the opening of the Polish question, and even in 1863 made it appear advisable to do our best not to facilitate, but to obviate, the opening of this question by Russia. Bismarck touches on an interesting point here. The Polish question wasn't the only European question which had sensitive answers attached to it. The nationality question in general was troubling for those empires who dominated several European peoples. There was a wide spread of ethnic peoples as well in the 19th century. Nowadays we imagine Europe as made up of several homogenous nation-states, but in the 19th century this is not what the map of Europe looked like. Germans, Poles, Italians, all manner of Eastern European ethnicities were all spread across the different empires. In West Prussia, for example, that sensitive portion of the Kingdom of Prussia, which the Poles would have had a serious claim to, there were already discrepancies between exactly how many Germans or how many Poles were in the region. And even by 1919, when Poland was recreated and West Prussia was handed to her new republic, this answer still was not clear. This reminds us of the important fact that in 1919, when those peacemakers tried to make the Treaty of Versailles, they were forced to grapple with problems and with issues that had been they were forced to grapple and to reckon with issues and with problems that had been current in Europe for several decades, and in some cases, several centuries. In fact, it wouldn't be until Stalin, in the aftermath of World War II, determined that it was time to clean things up a bit and brutally move, basically, Germans and Poles and Ukrainians, etc. around and to settle the borders, that things became a little bit more simplified. Of course, this cost millions of lives, literally, but it was done, in Stalin's mind, for a good reason. The borders of Europe meant that any nationalities in different countries, any Germans who lived in Poland, any Poles who lived in Russia, any Ukrainians who lived in Poland, etc., etc., they posed a danger to the national stability of each individual state. And the only way to fix this, the only way to make things more stable and more durable, was to put all the different peoples in the places that they actually belonged. Put the Germans in Germany, put the Ukrainians in Ukraine, put the Poles in Poland, etc., etc. I always find it interesting talking about this incident. It happened over the late 1940s, but it's mostly forgotten in history today. And it's important that we remember it because it shows how different our world was to the world of the 1860s. To a world ruled by multi-ethnic empires, which tended to just let the people go wherever they want. And that meant in a situation like this with the Polish revolt, it was hard to know exactly where all the Poles even lived. Where would the borders of a German nation-state go to, or to a Polish state, or, to take it even further, a Slav state, an issue which would become much more relevant as the 19th century progressed. 
It wasn't just the Polish question then, but the nationality question that was the issue, to Bismarck and to others. It was so much safer to ignore this question and to move on. Bismarck was conservative in this respect at least, but in other ways, not so much. As Edward Crankshaw notes on Bismarck, Bismarck knew the Poles. He knew their language and urged the Crown Prince to learn it too. He knew the Polish peasants of East Prussia and liked them. He knew the Polish nobles and bourgeoisie and feared them. In his eyes, they were Slav barbarians, got up in a parody of Western elegance and irredeemably corrupted by revolutionary intellectuals. It was all very well to feel this way, but what practical solutions did Bismarck offer on this occasion? Well, General Gustav von Alvensleben was signed to St. Petersburg to gauge the Polish situation. Alvensleben was the king's personal friend and adjutant, which shows just how seriously Bismarck and the king were taking this issue. As a result of Alvensleben's trip, he was able to sign the Alvensleben Convention with Russia on the 8th of February 1863. This convention would enable both powers to pursue rebels across their borders. In other words, if Polish rebels crossed from Prussia into Russia, then the Prussian soldiers could follow them there, and vice versa. Bismarck himself described the Alvensleben Convention in the following way. The Prussian policy embodied in the military convention, concluded by General Gustav von Alvensleben in February 1863, had a diplomatic rather than a military significance. It stood for the victory in the Russian cabinet of Prussian over Polish policy. The issue was determined by the personal decision of the Tsar in opposition to the policy of his ministers. An agreement between Russia and the German foe of pan-Slavism for joint action, military and political, against the Polish movement was a decisive blow to the views of the pro-Polish party at the Russian court. And as such, the agreement, though in a military sense little more than a salve, amply accomplished its purpose. Its purpose may have been accomplished, but liberal opinion across Europe, and even remotely pro-Polish sentiments across the world, were utterly horrified. It was easy to paint a negative picture of what was going down. Here were two of the most reactionary, absolutist powers crushing the national dreams of the Poles. Of course, it wasn't as simple as this as we've detailed. The act of resurrecting Poland would have caused headaches for virtually all European powers, not just the Poles and the Russians. Knock-on effects could be felt everywhere. Was there a danger of war from Napoleon III, though? We know, of course, in retrospect, that there wasn't, and that Prussia and France wouldn't come to blows until 1870, and in that case, not because of Poland, If anyone was going to intervene in Europe for the Polish cause, it would surely be the French. On the other hand, this meant that if the French didn't act, it was very unlikely that anyone else would. Napoleon himself was torn. He wasn't just torn between the reality and the fantasy of the Polish idea. He was also torn between wanting to show loyalty and affinity to the Poles and preserve the beginnings of a Franco-Russian partnership which had been building in the late 1850s and the first few months of the 1860s. The Polish issue complicated all of this because it was well known across the world that the French were good friends of the Poles. 
But Napoleon made the issue worse as well, because he refused to pick one policy or the other for as long as possible, which meant that those Poles, who might not have fought as long if they knew their cause was hopeless, continued to fight in the hope that if they could just resist another month or another week or another day, then the French might be inspired enough to join them in their cause. Unfortunately, this did not happen. Napoleon was determined to have his Polish cake and eat it. But he couldn't do this if he wanted to be a friend to Russia. And this was the issue. It wasn't an issue in Napoleon's mind, though, because he was the French emperor. So it wasn't simply a case of will I, won't I in private, but very much in public. If the French Empire couldn't decide whether it wanted to offend its Polish exiles or offend its potential Russian friend, who was going to come into the midst of this to save the French Emperor from his dilemma? The only alternative for Napoleon would be to admit to the world that he could do nothing for his Polish friends, or on the other side of it, to launch a costly war with a doubtful outcome. It is at this point that people begin to criticise Bismarck. Because from their perspective, Bismarck does something unlikely. He saves Napoleon from having to choose. By throwing his weight in on the side of the Russians, Bismarck made it clear to the world that not just Russia, but also Prussia, were going to stand against this Polish tide. And if any foreign powers intervened, they would fight them as one. This, to Napoleon, gave him something of a get-out-of-jail-free card. It was all very well to posture and stand up against the Russians, but to fight an alliance which could well gain new members was another issue entirely. Otto Flans, one of Bismarck's biographers, criticises Bismarck here for, as he put it, getting Napoleon III off the horns of a dilemma. But in my view, and in the view of others, it wasn't so simple. For his part, Bismarck was thinking strategically. We mentioned before that he operated on the principle that Poland was bad for Prussia. So, with that in his back pocket, he moved to reinforce his other principle, that Prussia, in order to have a free hand with Austria or France or whoever else, had to make a friend with the Russians. Conveniently, for Bismarck, keeping the Poles down and making good friends with the Russians seemed to go hand in hand as principles and as aims. And Jonathan Steinberg, Bismarck's biographer, believes that Bismarck was thinking strategically in this sense and that he didn't make a grave error in saving Napoleon from his mistake. Unfortunately for Bismarck, though, the Alvensleben Convention wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. It didn't give him what he wanted, even though it sent a firm message to the wider world. There was mixed feelings in Russia about the Alvensleben Convention. There was mixed messages about what the actual agreement entailed. The Tsar and Gorchakov didn't want the world to view Russia as a needy power who had only been saved by the Prussians, the Prussians now expecting some kind of IOU as recompense. It was also awkward considering how quickly Prussia intervened. Did the Russians fear being in Prussia's debt, in the same way that they had once imagined Austria being in their debt? They also feared Prussia's intentions. Bismarck also had been a bit insensitive in his declarations. At one point he had insisted that if the Poles had won and ejected the Russians and established a new Polish state based around Warsaw, then he would use all means in his power to cross into Russian territory with a Prussian army 
conquer the region and hold on to it until it could be made plain that the Russians would be able to hold on to it themselves again. This, in some circles, was interpreted as Bismarck saying that he would conquer this region and virtually never leave. It was too close to the bone for the Russian Tsar to have it hinted or whispered that the Prussians would save Russia from its Polish disaster, or that the Prussians would invade Russia, whether St. Petersburg wanted them to or not, and for the sake of their own security, crush the Poles on Russian land. Bismarck talked about his plan to invade Russian territory and put down the Poles to many people in Berlin, and word soon got out to the Russian court. The Tsar denied that he had ever asked Bismarck to go as far as this, though, as Russian Chancellor Gorchakov noted when he said, To give to the intervention larger proportions would correspond neither with the needs of the movement nor with the relative power of the two courts with respect to the insurrection. Such an enlargement would be contrary to the views of the emperor. There was nothing for it except for Bismarck to defend himself in the Landtag or wherever else he was challenged. A contemporary observed Bismarck's performance in the Landtag in late January 1863. This was where he advocated the idea of the hole in the constitution for the first time. Remember, this hole in the constitution idea was really a manipulation of the situation, typically enough for Bismarck. And it was really just done so that he wouldn't have to listen to the Landtag anymore, and so that he wouldn't have to humour the deputies that sat within it. As this contemporary observed... Bismarck still wore civilian clothes then. His full moustache was still red blonde, as was the thinning hair on his head. His tall, broad-shouldered figure seemed at the minister's table mighty and impressive, whereas a certain casualness in stance, movement and speech had something provocative about it. He kept his right hand in the pocket of his light-coloured trousers and reminded me of the crowning second at the Heidelberg dueling fraternities. He already had a certain way in which, in hesitant sentences... He seemed to search for words and always found the most penetrating and showed his knack for sharp, crushing responses. He looked to me very yunkerish and had the gruffness of the old corps student, especially his manner of good-naturedly pumping malice into his excited opponents. That was the stormy session in which he developed the idea that the state would and could live without a budget because it had to. That aroused the fury of the members. Then the leader of the opposition accused Bismarck of developing the principle that power takes precedence over justice. His contemporaries might have been closer to the bone than they realised. To Bismarck, nothing was more important than power. At least nothing was more important than him having power. Certainly it was more important than any notion of justice or morality or doing the right thing. He would not compromise on his core principles and he would not give any ground to the land tag. Prussia would operate without a budget, or without the land tag's approval, as was needed. The land tag was all very nice, the constitution would have to be respected, but as with any constitution, especially in the 19th century, there were loopholes around some of its more difficult democratic aspects, which could be bypassed if you were the king and the king's minister, and you had all the power in the land to begin with. Spring 1863 was a difficult time for Bismarck to begin with. Some believed that, with the Alvensleben Convention, Bismarck had promised too much. And was this a fair judgment? In my view, not really. I side with Steinberg when it comes to judging Bismarck's performance here. 
especially because he kept that end goal of the Russian alliance in mind and didn't lose sight of it, even when it would have been easy to leave Russia to its own devices. Of course, it's often forgotten that Bismarck wasn't just acting in the name of Russia. He was also acting in the name of the Prussian interest too. By crushing Poland and keeping Poland low, there was no chance then in the future that these Poles could rise up again. It perhaps wouldn't have been so trying a situation had Bismarck's manner been adapted to the situation. But even though it was noted that he slipped up, Bismarck still behaved as though he had all the answers and as though he knew better than everyone else. Maybe this was just a defensive mechanism again, to withdraw further into yourself, to almost deny the fact that you could be in the wrong, and by the fact that you kept on exuding confidence, you might persuade your opponents that you were in fact in the right, or at least that anything that went wrong wasn't your fault. Bismarck wasn't condescending in his manner, he was condescending in his very beliefs. He would be perfectly willing to tell you that the only people who should be in a position to criticise or give advice on government policy were those people within the actual government itself. Everyone else had no idea what real life was like. Everyone else had no idea what the reality was like within that circle, and thus they had no right to judge. In Bismarck's mind, most of the information that people got was from newspapers anyway, and much of this information was biased and not particularly accurate. As he wrote in his memoirs, I have noticed the phenomenon in the press that when the newspapers report a new, hitherto unknown and surprising story, they usually add the phrase, as is well known, such and such is the case. I believe that the previous speaker finds himself in the same position when he says that opinion of Europe on the Alvensleben Convention is absolutely unanimous. The opinion of Europe cannot be unanimous about something of which it knows nothing. We can detect a tone of bitterness here. Bismarck did not like to be criticised. He really did not like to be criticised. And that's what is often forgotten about his character as well. We see him as this wise elder statesman. But the thing about wisdom is that you need to be willing to admit when you might be at fault. And you need to not put your pride before the facts of the matter. Bismarck's ego had always been an issue. And now that it was given a platform on which to grow and spread its wings... His ego was destined to be even more of a problem. We could argue that he never allowed this ego to get out of control, but by the very fact that he seemed unwilling to admit fault, or during any phase of his regime to take responsibility for what had happened and make himself accountable, should tell us that Bismarck believed he was above all such things. And he would later go even further than merely detesting criticism in the press. He seemed to have something of a vendetta against newspapers. His mention, his very specific mention of them here, hints at something he would pursue later on down the line. The press decree, which we'll examine in the next episode, where Bismarck essentially brought in a law that made it impossible for people in the media to criticise him, his regime, or the king. And they made it suitably vague as well, so that you could be penalised for all sorts of things. He had to put up with criticism because in Prussia, before Bismarck changed the law, the press had relatively free reign. And Bismarck had been willing in the past to manipulate these newspapers. Almost as soon as he had decided on his policy course and to make the Alvensleben Convention a reality, he had ordered those newspapers within his remit to publish news of this initiative and to show the Russians, by doing so, that Prussia was on Russia's side. So he was willing to use newspapers himself, but he didn't like when they were used against him. Noticing a bit of a trend here? 
It was one rule for Bismarck and one rule for everyone else. Bismarck could use the media to create his own narrative and then criticise that same media for not being informative enough, all the while suiting himself. Robert H. Lord noted on the situation, The world was given to understand that Prussia and Russia had just concluded an agreement about Poland of the utmost importance, that the Prussian troops were just about to march into that kingdom, that the cabinet of Berlin did not believe that the other powers would even dare to enter a protest. Having thus aroused the curiosity and the alarm of the public in Germany and Western Europe, Bismarck insisted on making a mystery of the terms of the convention. It is difficult to acquit Bismarck, Lord added, of not a little bungling in connection with the convention. Bismarck's contemporaries certainly believe that he had bungled the situation. There was a liberal outcry launched against conservatives and reactionaries on the harder lines in Prussia and Russia, who had all geared up and prepared themselves, it seems, to crush the Poles and their national dreams. This outcome, this unpopularity, was certainly not what Bismarck had wanted. And it wasn't helped by the fact that the Russians didn't really seem to be playing ball. In particular, Chancellor Gorchakov, who seemed really quite ungrateful at the fact that Bismarck had, in his own unique way, tried to rescue Russia from her problems. Gorchakov didn't want to be rescued. He insisted that Russia had never asked for Prussian support, and had only agreed with the Prussians to pursue Polish rebels across each other's borders. Prussian forces, said Gorchakov, had never actually been permitted to invade Russian Poland and put the revolt down. This exercise in Gorchakov said, Bismarck said, might move us to ask a very important question. If there was so much disagreement over what the Alvinslieben Convention was, what actually was the Alvinslieben Convention? Well, Bismarck doesn't seem to really be able to agree with himself. On the one hand, he had proposed this convention, arguing for military intervention into Russian Poland. Yet on the other hand, he says in his memoirs that the Alvinslieben Convention was not positively demanded by the military situation, with which the Russian troops were strong enough to cope. I believe Bismarck kept it deliberately vague so that he could control the narrative on what the convention was and so that he could react depending on public responses to it. But again, Bismarck probably didn't expect such a storm of controversy, just like he hadn't with his iron and blood debacle. And Bismarck, again, was not used to facing this scrutiny. He was used to flying under the radar, maybe meeting the king every now and then, petitioning his contacts, etc, etc. Now he was on the world stage, and he was, for lack of a better term, exposed to all of the criticisms that had previously not been made public. Because why would you make criticism public about a Prussian diplomat? Which was what Bismarck had been, a Prussian diplomat. But now he was the Prussian Prime Minister, essentially. And such figures are subject to criticism, and they must be held accountable for their actions. This crisis here of the Alvinslieben Convention, and that previous incident of the Iron and Blood speech, shows us how Bismarck reacted to those that weren't so fond of him. But it is safe to say that even if Bismarck didn't appreciate the criticism, he would have to have admit deep down that the Alvinslieben Convention did not go how he wanted it to. Having spent a long time trying to cozy up to the Franco-Russian alliance and include Prussia in that somehow, Bismarck found that this Franco-Russian alliance 
was essentially disintegrating. Not only that, but both members of that alliance seemed to be cooling towards Prussia after its behaviour here. Napoleon III's relationship with Prussia had been testy for a while, but this incident here seemed to have pushed Napoleon III to breaking point. The French Emperor had had to choose between a potential Prussian friendship and a Russian alliance, or helping Poland, and he didn't quite know what to do, until Bismarck chose for him, that was, and gave Napoleon a get-out-of-jail-free card. The Alvinsleben Convention meant that Napoleon couldn't side with either the Russians or the Prussians, at least not publicly, because this would make his Polish lobby terribly upset and disenchanted with him. At the same time, it's also fair to say that though he valued the Poles and had a nostalgic affinity for them because of what his uncle had done for them, Napoleon desperately wanted an agreement with Russia. He believed this agreement with Russia would unlock French potential and also secure French interests in the East. It was because Napoleon wanted this Russian arrangement that he determined to focus French hostility towards the Prussians rather than the Russians. You see, if you focus your hostility and blamed the Prussians for everything that had happened, then it was less likely you would fall out with Russia over the Polish issue. This development had only brief consequences, as we will see, but for a while at least, French hostility was focused towards Prussia in a way that it hadn't been for a long time. And this played, don't forget, into the very genuine fears that many Prussian statesmen had about Napoleon III's intentions. They thought that within a few years when he was powerful enough, he would move to attack over the Rhine to change the status quo which had been established in 1815. This was what many Prussians feared. Many of the more conservatives feared that Napoleon III was no different to his uncle in this respect. Bismarck had worked hard to change these ideas, but it certainly hadn't helped that through his own policy, but not necessarily all through his own fault, Napoleon III now focused his hostility on Prussia and apparently seemed content to stand aloof from any agreement with Prussia which might have been in the offing before. Bismarck has been criticised heavily for this Alvensleben Convention incident, but don't forget this Polish and Russian issue was a very sensitive one, and Bismarck was very limited by what he could actually do and what freedom he had. Because Bismarck accepted the principle that the Poles had to be kept low at all costs, he could never side with a power like the French who were willing to let the Poles come back to life again. Bismarck insisted that they had to be kept low. Only if they were kept low would Prussia be secure, would her borders not be under threat by a renewed Polish offensive, and would the national question generally across Europe not be brought into the open again. By keeping the Poles low, the status quo was preserved and everyone was better off for it. In order to do this though, in order to realise this policy initiative, Bismarck was forced to side with the Russians publicly, an act which he at least hoped would have the side effect of improving the Prussia-Russian relationship. But of course he wasn't counting on Gorchakov, who seemed to have a smug pleasure in making Bismarck's life difficult. Prussia had to pursue her interests either way, Bismarck would insist, whether this alienated potential friends or not. Of course it was preferable when potential friends were not alienated, but Bismarck was adamant that Prussia should not be hamstrung, either by Austria, or by the French Emperor, or by the Poles. There was nothing particularly unusual about Bismarck's desire to put Prussia first. After all, that was what all Prime Ministers were supposed to do. But tension with the French increased either way. 
In fact, by mid-February, the French foreign minister was telling the Prussian ambassador in Paris that removing Bismarck would be the only way to solve this crisis. Just consider the nerve of this demand, and also consider the what-ifs if the Prussians had actually followed through and felt obliged to remove Bismarck, the man who, ironically enough, would force Napoleon III from his own position. But of course, in an atmosphere like that of Europe in the early 1860s, when many of the old assumptions seemed to be in flux, Napoleon couldn't be hostile towards Prussia forever. If he was, then he would eliminate one of his own potential allies too. He had to make a show of opposing Bismarck, but there could be no lasting hostility once the Polish issue blew over, which it did definitively the following year in 1864, when the unfortunate Poles were crushed once again. Bismarck gambled that the Russian origins of the crisis would also mean that Prussia wouldn't be persona non grata for long. Since the Polish revolt was happening in Russia and not in Prussia, it seemed only reasonable to expect that international opinion and international hostility would focus its attentions onto St. Petersburg. This took a while to take place because initially, Foreign opinion was outraged that the Prussians would side with the Russians at all. And condemnation seemed reserved only for the Prussians for siding with the Russians instead of the Russians for having the awful policy towards the Poles to begin with. This changed once the conflict between Poland and Russia exploded out onto the open and it became impossible to ignore the fact that the Russians were brutally attempting to repress the Polish revolt. Of course they had to because Poland and Russia were essentially in a state of war by this point so there was little that the Russians could do other than put the Poles down by force. But reports of how the Russians used force and their tactics within Poland itself soon had the effect of redirecting international attention towards the Russians. The Prussians were forgotten, as was pretty much most of the details of the Alvinsleben Convention, and everything seemed to go back to some form of normal. By late March, the Russians were plainly carrying the war on against Poland by themselves. And European media outlets certainly seem more focused now on the Russians than ever before. Until this change happened though, Bismarck had to steer the course, and he had to endure criticism which he could not stand, from people who Bismarck insisted didn't understand the gravity, the reality, or the complexities of the situation, which he was doing his level best to guide Prussia through. Bismarck had also taken several gambles. He had gambled correctly that Napoleon III didn't care enough about Poland to make it into a war issue. This proved correct. French public opinion, while sympathetic and somewhat nostalgic for the Poles, was a chasm away from committing itself to a war with probably several European complications and an uncertain outcome. Napoleon barked, but Bismarck believed he wouldn't bite, and that in the meantime he could manipulate him. And on the basis of this belief, he was willing in the short term to alienate Prussia from France. This mention of short term versus long term is important, because in order to assess whether Bismarck was successful here, I believe it's important not to look at what happened immediately after news of the Alvinsleben Convention was learned of, but to look at what happened by the end of the year. Now, of course, we're going to be covering the rest of 1863 and other episodes, but you should know that much of the assumptions Bismarck had about how Russia and how France would react to the Polish issue were played out. They were fulfilled, because by the end of 1863, Prussia was back on good terms with the Russians and the French again. Neither power, it seemed, 
were willing to let Prussia slip out of their grasp. Both France and Russia believed that Prussia could be a useful lever to use against the Austrians or the Germanys or the British or anyone else. And it was pointless, as Bismarck would have agreed, to alienate a potential ally simply because the Poles were causing trouble. At the same time, though, just because the long-term situation favoured Bismarck, that doesn't mean that Bismarck all along had been thinking long-term. In fact, he had been taught another useful lesson. He had been taught not to underestimate foreign opinion. And he had also been taught not to act too hastily, as arguably he had done when he had rushed to make it clear to the Russians in the beginning of this crisis that Prussia was on Russia's side. Had, perhaps, Bismarck not rushed to create the Alvinsleben Convention so quickly, had he played hardball for a little while, he might have found that the Russians were more appreciative. As indeed they were later on in the year, when all those initial hard feelings and suspicions and awkwardness were replaced by a kind of gratitude that Prussia had stood by Russia's side, even though the way in which she had done so hadn't been altogether perfect. There was no point in forcing Russia to accept an arrangement that they neither wanted nor needed. So Bismarck's gradual abandonment of the Alvinsleben Convention also shows his flexibility. By allowing this convention to lapse essentially willy-nilly, Bismarck could also deflect some criticism about it that he had been too pro-Russian or that he acted too hastily to begin with. He could downplay the Alvinsleben Convention itself, say that it was no longer required, and also say that there were no hard feelings between Prussia and Russia, which in the end turned out to be true, but at the time this would hardly have been certain. It shows that Bismarck didn't take things too personally, that he was able to give up on the Alvinsleben Convention. But we should also add that Bismarck informed the French that he had allowed it to lapse too. This might have shown that Bismarck wanted to stay in Napoleon III's good books, It at least shows that Prussian policy wasn't rigidly pro-Russian and that Napoleon could fit in with it. And perhaps Bismarck believed that by communicating openly with the French, he would show that Prussia had several options in this regard. It was important, Bismarck had come to realise, to use news of a policy to your advantage. Once the Russians discovered that the Prussians had been talking to France, they might feel less willing to turn down Prussian help in the future. And similarly with the French, if the French knew that Prussia had a Russian friend to rely on, then the French might be more inclined to value that Prussian friendship. Bismarck claimed anyway, and he would go on claiming, that he had only acted because the Russians had asked. Gorchakov, of course, contested this idea, and smugly insisted that Bismarck had been forced to retreat in the face of foreign pressure. Bismarck downplayed the mistakes, muddled the actual terms of the Alvinsleben Convention to the point that it isn't all that clear today, and of course absolved himself of any responsibility for it. But even if he absolved himself from any errors, he would still have to endure whatever criticism followed, and this he did not like. Either way, within a few months after some coolness, the Russians and the French were back on speaking terms with Prussia. Poland clearly wasn't an important enough issue for the French to go to war over or for the Russians to ruin their relationships over either. This is one of the few early examples of Gorchakov's bluster towards Berlin. But neither Gorchakov nor the Tsar wanted to alienate Prussia. They might enjoy watching Bismarck squirm, but they didn't want Prussia to retreat from the Russian sphere 
or for Russia to lose any of the options it might have had in building up a coalition in Europe that could benefit their interests. Bismarck, throughout this whole crisis, did his best to maintain an air of calm, collected control. He was unfazed, so he claimed, by reactions by the public to either the Alvinsliebling Convention or Prussia's role in helping Russia crush the Polish revolt. Almost because Bismarck tried to defy public opinion in this way, he was painted as the bad guy. Again, though, Bismarck weathered the storm, and just like he had retained control over Wilhelm following the Blood and Iron speech, he retained control over foreign affairs and over public opinion as well within a few months. Bismarck kept himself focused on the end goal of Austria. He held his tongue and watched his pride so that Russia and eventually France returned to a good relationship with Prussia. In doing this, Bismarck showed his endurance. He showed that he also had a lack of regard for public opinion, no matter how hostile it was, because he believed that he knew better. He believed that those who were criticising him were operating on the basis of information that they'd gleaned from newspapers. Newspapers were all well and good, Bismarck would say, but I'm dealing with the facts. I'm dealing with state documents. I'm dealing with first-hand reports of ambassadors and officials, etc., etc., I know more than you, therefore I am better placed to make a judgement call. So you can stop with your criticism. Bombastic and sensitive though he may have been during this crisis, the world was coming to realise that Bismarck was not like other minister-presidents. Either of these crises would have cut a minister-president of lesser calibre down to size. But through these two crises Bismarck had held on. He had held on and he had gambled that things would go his way and he had proved correct. It had been a shaky start, for sure. But in both of these crises, with Blood and Iron and with the Convention, Bismarck had learned an awful lot and he had emerged from both of them in the late spring of 1863 with a newfound understanding of how his relationship with the King was to work and how sometimes in diplomacy one had to be wary of acting too hastily or committing too much. Bismarck learned these lessons just in time, because in the summer of 1863, the Austrian Emperor Franz Josef invited all German princes and potentates to meet him in the city of Frankfurt. The reason being, he wanted to devise a brand new German confederation. This one following the tides of liberal German opinion, and following to the letter, the instructions of Austria's leadership. King Wilhelm of Prussia, much like his other German peers, was summoned to Frankfurt by Vienna. And the Austrians expected the King of Prussia to play ball in this regard, to attend what became known as the Congress of Princes, and for Prussia to play its role in peacefully, democratically, diplomatically uniting Germany behind the leadership of Austria. Bismarck, needless to say, was horrified at this plan, and he set to work persuading the reluctant Wilhelm to boycott this Congress of Princes no matter what the cost. And thus Bismarck's second campaign of 1863 began. This one, the Congress of Princes, was to have dramatic consequences, not just for Europe, for Germany, for Austria and for Prussia, but also for Bismarck's relationship with King Wilhelm. If it wasn't clear yet that the relationship between servant and master was somewhat muddled and somewhat vague as to who was who, then the Congress of Princes incident was to shatter all of these illusions. 
It was to be a stressful, exhausting campaign where Bismarck was forced to use all of his powers of persuasion and pressure and not a small amount of bullying to get his way. But the end result of this ruthless campaign was that by the end of the year of 1863, Bismarck's power over the king was unquestionable. His importance to the king was guaranteed. And from that secure position, he could make his real first play into foreign affairs against the Danes. Before he did that, though, the Congress of Princes came first. And in the next episode, we're going to examine that. This has been a very long episode here, History Friends. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you've enjoyed the different style that we had. I've edited the living daylights out of this thing, and it's taken me a long time. But I do think it's a nice, different approach to podcasting, which I've tried to do before, but I really find very difficult to change my style. So hopefully this guy here is something you've enjoyed. It's certainly given me food for thought as to how I'll approach projects like these in the future. And you can expect the last two episodes to take this more free-flowing style. Don't forget, of course, if you want the notes, if you want the references, etc., check out the Patreon page and check out the post for this episode. You'll see the script in the attachments and you'll be able to go from there. Just if you're curious as to where I'm getting my information. I have to say a massive thanks to you for sticking with me if you've listened through this whole episode, you mad thing you, and I hope to see you next time, or instantly if you've gone to Patreon and downloaded them all to binge instantly. Thanks so much for listening. This has been Hardcore When Diplomacy Fails on Bismarck, episode 6, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.